Welcome to episode 87 of the Winning Six podcast, the official podcast of BehindTheBookPass.com. I'm your host, site expert Adam McGee, and join me this week, as usual, we have Jordan Tresky. Hello, Jordan. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Yeah, good. What, what, what could be wrong? Many things. Well, we'll get to some of them. Um, the books went 0-3 this week that was both a good and a bad thing I think we learned a lot about the books I also think it taught us some things we didn't necessarily want to know and maybe expanding upon that further some things that maybe aren't so ideal have emerged from the past week Rather than going game by game through it, we'll sort of touch on all three games as we go. Gonna get straight to the matters at hand, and I guess there's only one place to start with this. Any guesses on what that could be, Jordan? Um, hmm. Uh, new assistant coach, uh, uh, what is his name? Brohammer? Brohammer is a surname, which is. This is okay. This was the the most pressing matter at hand, of course. Um, <laughs> Jordan and I are avid assistant coach watchers, ardent fans of those who sit on the end of the bench, not named Steve Novak, and of course we all knew Stacy Ogman, new new face to the books bench. We all got a good look at that face when. He stared us down the camera, looking us all directly in the eye. Stacy's getting more polished as time goes on, and and now we look we look forward to more Stacy Ogman stare downs. Hashtag Stacy Ogman stare downs. Um, but this week, Stacy stare downs. We were introduced <laughs> to a new assistant coach, uh, whose whose first name. Is escaping both Jordan and I, and the reason yeah, for what, that—the reason for that—is because his surname is Brohammer. So, I mean, when you're saying it's Brohammer, it's all of a sudden your your first name is a little less memorable. Any luck, Jordan? Well, I, I just looked up Brohammer coach, and there were some pretty uh, terrible things that I should not play on this podcast, but. I can't find it right now. His name is, and I should have remembered this. It's Josh Brohammer. Josh, there we, yeah, there we go, yeah. So Josh Brohammer, 
From one jazz to another jazz. A stellar debut interview appearance. A really young guy. Very, very impressed with that interview. Same, went to the same school as Sean Sweeney and started out as a video coordinator in the vein of Sean Sweeney as well. Sweeney 2.0. I mean, we see Sweeney what you're doing. 2.0. Um, we were excited to track Josh Brohammer, particularly in interviews, as the season goes on. And we will keep you updated on all on all things Brohammer. So, hashtag Brohammer watch if you want to. Want to talk to other people about Josh Brohammer and maybe stumble into places you don't want to talk about. By the power of Thor himself. <laughs> of course, outside of Josh Brohammer. It's been something of a kerfuffle in the the books universe this week. As what were the subject of assistant coaches? No, and we're not going there. There's been something of a kerfuffle in the books universe this week as Greg Monroe's minutes have uh, plummeted, might be putting it kindly. Plummeted. Oh, that's, I like that. This time last week, we were probably, I can't quite remember, but I'm going to guess that we were still singing Monroe's praises for what has been a very impressive start to the season from him based on what we thought he was and what we saw he was last year. Um, he's ranked number one in the Jared Bayless Award rankings. Yeah, and I, I think he probably still is. If he never plays again, he probably yeah. holds position. I think that's how it works. <laughs> it's trapped in amber. <laughs> preserved in amber. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way of describing it. <laughs> so, a week ago, everything was rosy. I mean... Monroe was probably the book's third best player this season and also maybe the third most important. He was a pivotal piece in everything that had been good for the books and he really hadn't done a lot wrong. That last part remains true for all that we can see a week later, except in three games, three games the books lost, two of the games they lost pretty unimpressively even though the Hawks score was close Greg Monroe has logged nine total minutes that was seven minutes against Atlanta a DMP against Miami and two minutes against the Golden State Warriors for context on that um Jason Kidd has mentioned matchups on multiple occasions as being part of the reasoning. There's clearly this new idea that didn't exist a week ago, but seems to be like deeply entrenched in all core books philosophies that they can't play more than two centers at once now. Last season against Miami, Greg Monroe averaged 16 points and eight rebounds. Against the Golden State Warriors, he averaged 19 points, 12 rebounds, five and a half assists. And regardless of how he did last year, against the Atlanta Hawks this week, Dwight Howard was out injured. The Hawks had Mike Mascala starting. And then when Mascala took a seat, Chris Humphreys was filling in at center. Is there any logical reason for you that's jumping out as to why Monroe's minutes have completely fallen off the edge of the world? 
Um, I, I, <laughs> it's I, you, I, you can't just say no. Hello. No, I won't. I, I wasn't going to say no. Uh, I just, I think it just, it touches into the hearsay, the scuttlebutt, the gossip, the, another word related okay, to so gossip. Is so what, what is the element of the gossip that we won't dive too deeply into, but what, <laughs> what element of gossip are you feeling it touches on? Like, is this... Is this like, say, Zach Lowe describing something fishy having to be going on at the heart of this because it doesn't really make sense otherwise? Or yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I I know there's other stuff there too, but like the fact that a uh, an actual respected respected and not even I think even as uh, low post. Recent low post pod says something about he's not even really plugged in there. He's not, not, you know, with the team. He's not doing a story or anything like that. And the fact that that's jumping out the way it has. And again, considering, you know, this is not the first go around of kind of mysterious minutes not being played or uh, absences. I mean, obviously, you. The most famous one before this with the kid is the random DMP for Rihanna. So then we later found out what that was and all that stuff. So the, I, I think it was actually even from Zach Lowe, if I could, if that makes. Um, it was from it was from Jared Dudley, wasn't it? on a low post. Jared, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I guess. So you you feel something? Okay. So you feel it's logical. Without us having an explanation, it's logical because there is clearly something, something afoot or some issue. There's there is something more than its play. I guess if we're to put it down to, you're not buying this as some sort of matchup issue for all three games this week, or something to do with how he has performed. Because I mean. There's really not a lot to pull from that that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you look at the way games, the three games were managed uh, this week specifically, um, it's definitely not matchup related because Kid has gone small to close out the Hawks game and Warriors game. That's more situation or dictated by the situation, but that's also that I mean, it comes through a matchup type thing. And the fact that I, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's such a, such a mess. Mm. The, the only real thing that I can currently give credence to, um, as a possible explainer for it is if he was about, if he's about to be traded or they're actually pretty deep in trade discussions. That's, that's the only thing that if he was traded three days from now, I'd say, okay, they've obviously felt they were close for a while and they didn't want to risk injuries, whatever. And I don't think that would be a good move considering what he's shown he is able to do for them in the first 
I guess, 10 games for him, nine games, really. Um, uh, but at the same time, knowing everything we know, knowing the money tied up in Plumney and Henson, uh, he's likely not going to be around long term because if he plays as well as he had been, there's probably going to be a market for him. That That could make sense. If it's not that, that's where it gets really sort of really dicey because you sort of kill off any potential market. You take you completely take the window of sales. So not only are you taking away the momentum that has allowed him to be an effective contributor to the team so far, you take away sort of the impact his play has had around the league. I mean, because people people have noticed. I mean, it's yeah. anyone who's come on sort of, I don't know, not even people necessarily who regularly watch the books, but anyone who's just by chance caught the last 10 minutes of a books game. There's a chance Monroe has done something that's impressed them, and that's that wasn't the way it was last year. But he really, he's been a consistent performer, and he's shown more diversity to his game than ever before. If a deal isn't about to go down, it, makes, it doesn't make any sense in terms of what they get out of it. Obviously, there could be other stuff internally that forces them to that point. I just don't know. If that's the case, does he even get two minutes against the Warriors? I mean, why, why is he still... Why is Steve Novak a guy not dressed and you're dressing him still? Like, I feel if there was some sort of really major internal issue... And, and you, or not to cut in, but like, who's who do even knows if he would have played yesterday had not both Henson and Plumley gotten in foul trouble? And you've got to guess because Kid did say before the game he was only going to play two centers. Mm-hmm. But even that doesn't that show something that like they can't fully afford to just freeze him out. And I think this is something we'll talk probably a little more about book small ball later. But the interesting thing with book small ball is it involves Yanis having to play the five. And because they need Yanis to also play the point guard and play the three or the four, it's not so easy to just say, oh, well, two centers and Yanis gives you sufficient depth. It's a little bit dicier than that if those two guys get into foul trouble, for example. There's... A lot of stuff not adding up there, and it's not the first time that's the case with the books, or the first time with Greg Monroe. The thing that really makes me curious right now is, is where is the, revol- the resolution to this? Or, I guess, what is the workaround? What is, let's say we take Kid at what has been his word for most this week. And... It can be one thing for us to say, well, the matchups were actually in Monroe's favor for a good part of the most recent schedule. But if we assume that Jason Kidd didn't believe that and he genuinely didn't play him much this week because of matchups, and then he's going to stick to his guns on this whole only two centers a night thing. I mean, if not Monroe, where does this leave Henson a week from now if he has three DMPs in a row? Plumley the week after that, if he has three DMPs in a row. How are we going to measure these guys, or how is it fair to have expectations of them living up to contracts, which is really everyone's obsession with it? If they don't know exactly where they're standing in a rotation, or they don't have a guarantee that there is regular minutes going their way, 
I know maybe an old-fashioned argument for that would be, well, players should have to prove they deserve their spot or deserve their minutes. They shouldn't have that sort of security blanket. But at the same time, players could be very sensitive. And that's that's the kind of thing that can help a guy who you've already maybe dented his confidence by changing his role, completely changing his status compared to anything he's ever been before. And then to strip it back that extra layer where it's not just, you know, you're not a starter, but there's games where you won't even get a chance to affect the outcome on the court. That's a big thing. And I, even if that's not Monroe, if that's Plumley who has struggled to start and there's probably lots of books fans who would sort of dismissively say, Oh yeah, give Plumley a DNP. Well, giving Plumley a DNP will sort of, start to put the final nails in the coffin of that being a nightmare deal. If you want to get the best out of Plumlee, you got to give him a chance to sort of get through the rough patch and get back to maybe what he was last year. Same with Henson. We've talked so many times about how how can we expect anything from Henson without consistent opportunity? And it's funny because now he's had a few games starting and he's the books haven't done well, but Henson has actually done okay to good, I feel, for, for the most part. But you can't help but feel that a week from now you could be back back as a DNP. Like, with <laughs> all of that, there's less of an answer to what the books can get from the center position than we thought there would be. Is there any way that can work, even if Kid is to be taken at his word on Monroe? I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things, too. I know we we've often joked in the past about kids, coach speakisms, and all these just, uh, you know, well, the jersey fits on him, so he's a basketball player. You know, stupid stuff like that. But, like, his quotes to me, obviously the uh, his quotes after the Warriors game were pretty telling. But his quote to me, uh, was it the – Heat game when he first talked about it, or was it the Hawks game? Was it the Heat game? He might have talked about the Hawks game because Monroe played seven minutes early enough, like he had been, say, probably second quarter. And then, yeah. then he sat for the rest of the night, which just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So it might yeah. have been the Hawks game either. Um, but he was talking about how, you know, uh, trying to build confidence in both Henson and Plumlee, you know, guys that have had inconsistent starts. And then I'm just thinking like, well, that makes sense. You're also at the same time you're, and you touched on it before, you're just diminishing Monroe's confidence by not even playing him. And I know we talk about fit and all this stuff, but like ultimately you want to have your best players on the floor as much as possible, even if they are, you know, uh, even if it's in Monroe's case, what it was before, like 20 minutes a night or whatever, and try to fit around him. He still was playing very well for them. And defensively, he was playing, he's probably been def- better defensively than he has been at any point with the Bucs. Ever. In his, in his NBA career, not even just with the Bucs. Uh, yeah. I, I, I want to say Bucs, or I want to say NBA career, but I just I didn't want to go to that leap. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, <laughs> but it's one of those things where I know Ty has often made this comparison. I, I, and I didn't, I've always kind of like, oh, I, there's different 
different factors with this, but it kind of is developing in if it does continue. I know it's three games, but if it keeps going, you know, growing and growing, and people uh, keeps noticing, it's going to become like this year's Marquise Moore situation. There are different factors with that, but the fact that he was, you know, there's the the what's similar is the trade talk all over the summer, even though that was more. Morris brought that on to himself, obviously, by making public comments about it. But the trade talk has always been there with Monroe for the, you know, practically since the trade deadline. And now when he was playing, you know, his best in a, like a team impact level uh, with the team since coming, you know, a little more than a year ago, minutes just quickly go away for whatever reason. I know we, this, there's a bunch of speculation, but we can't dispute. It's not going to change the fact that he's not playing. Yeah, uh, what I like about that, what I like about that comparison is that, and it, this is a term I, I I hate using, but <sighs> Morris had been built up to be this locker room cancer in his time with the Suns. Yeah, and of course we all know about Marquise Morris's history. Mm-hmm. Marcus Morris's history to the same extent and their time in Phoenix all this built and built and then their minutes became more inconsistent and what happens in that scenario is the conspiracy theories come out and fans just start to think about things and overanalyze things and it's not really fair to anyone and it, it brings you to a point where with both both of the Morris twins they, they end up with their new teams and they actually started playing pretty well straight away and people are like, oh, well, look, that's that's surprising. I mean, he's, they're locker room cancers, are they not? And there's sort of a part of that where you're like, well, where did where should everyone have drawn the line to begin with in what they were listening to, what they were believing, and in just saying, well, it's clearly not working between that team and that player. So let's assess the player on their merits, Let's take them at their word, the team at their word, without going sort of too much into the murky area in between and see what it is. And I think both of those guys have had relative success since just by being in environments where they were more wanted to begin with. And I can't help but feel that would be the same with Monroe if Monroe was traded tomorrow. Like, I've, I'll hold my hands up. I've been a Big critic of Greg Monroe in this time's a book. I think we and all the, have. Well, yeah, I, I do think so, although I think it took a lot longer for most to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it was a more gradual process for most fans. At the same time, I can't give Monroe anything but credit for what he's done this year. I can't say a bad word about him away from basketball and this year his basketball has given me only good things to say anything else is going to be speculation to me it's not going to anything more and that that brings you to sort of a weird place where in trying to explain an illogical situation it's easy to jump from point a to point b and come out with something that's completely different it's two plus two equals five I think there's a real danger of that with this situation. That's where I think the Morris one is is interesting because if this did go on longer, it drags on. If this is an issue and we're, we're getting like 
say bursts of minutes and uptick of minutes and then it crashes again and we're coming towards the summer i mean at, at this rate if it was this bad i think he would definitely opt out regardless and if he got that point and was doing well next year then people are like well, what happened well what happened was he was frozen out whether that's frozen out by the coach his teammates whatever it is for whatever reason i think you've just got to take the guy at his merits at the moment he's not really He's not really saying the wrong thing right now. As I said to you just before we started recording, when we were discussing this off air, what I find interesting to track with Monroe is, although he doesn't lie, he doesn't sugarcoat anything, he doesn't just give a canned answer. When he is asked about this, he doesn't give what I could term as the MCW answer of last year. He doesn't quite get his back up in that same way. He doesn't do like oh well i think this whole john henson being the starter thing is like it's a bit of a jump too far you know what i mean <laughs> imagine him saying it something like that now like everybody's just like is floored what <laughs> i i just feel people really need to restrain themselves from taking sides because i don't know why you take sides right now i don't i don't have innate trust in either the books or Greg Monroe to just assume that one party is right and one party is wrong. And from everything that we actually know that's sort of publicly out there for us at the moment, I I have to lean towards Monroe because I I don't, I'm not privy to what he has done to deserve not playing. If there is a reason and that's just not public, that's fine. But right now it's a strange decision and I'm not going to sort of make my own stories up as I go along to justify it. Does that make sense? No, oh, yeah, yeah. I totally agree, and I'm right there with you. Because, you know, stuff will trickle out eventually, and, you know, not to use this as an example all the time, but, you know, stuff like – remember, like, last year, you know, obviously there are different different set of circumstances, all that stuff, but, like, there were issues that – we had no idea when we were talking about last year that eventually surfaced and it's not like anything really uh it wasn't like kim was doing these same situation or same things yeah i mean like yeah and that's the the kevin arnovitz quote we talked about last week even well there's other stuff too but like something like that i feel that that was an example though something that like we're we're all going to be completely oblivious to that that's only that's not yeah. even something that guys like really closely covering the team on the beat or the most inside track reporters will necessarily get. That is like real inside the locker room, teammate whispering to teammate, coach whispering to coach. And unless someone sort of steps out of the ranks to say something on it, that's not going to get to you. And mm-hmm. that, that could be the same sort of circumstance you've got with Monroe right now. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, again, I just think... Like you said, to jump to any conclusions, take sides, or paint a narrative that we aren't honestly disclosed to pretty much whatsoever. Um, I, I think it's I, I don't I get cautious and nervous about that just because <laughs> at the end of the day these are people and people have reactions. To, it's their job and all this stuff. Like to it just I don't know. It's it can be very just 
Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure why, like, and this is the feeling I'm kind of getting out of it. Although there's anger over, there's anger over him not being played. Yeah. But that does tie into more of a general dissatisfaction with kids that is blown up to start this season that we'll talk about shortly. <laughs> like the last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, insanely, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> I mean, where were all these people a week ago when I was running that train? Or a year ago, I should say. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, I don't know. I feel there's there's a leaning towards sort of vilifying Monroe. Yeah. And I really don't understand why, because we don't have reason to do that yet. And it's, you know, innocent to proven guilty. Mm-hmm. And all he's guilty of right now is playing some damn good basketball this season. <laughs> we'll get back to more on Monroe through some different sort of avenues as this goes on but there was some downright shocking news on Saturday and that of course is that Rashad Vaughn has been assigned to the D-League the Westchester Knicks home of Damian Inglis in the D-League. I don't... I, I wonder what way the books are sort of working this... I don't know they still call it the flex assignment rule. Yeah, flex assignment, yeah. I thought it was a little bit more... You know, if, if a team raises their hand first, that's where a guy is going. The fact that the books now seem to have this thing where they can kind of just assign guys to the Westchester Knicks whenever they want is pretty interesting because I don't feel it's a coincidence. They they managed to get Inglis there on two separate occasions last year, and now mm-hmm. they've got Vaughn there too, which, if nothing else, it's like, oh, we're, look, you're going to the D-League, but we're sending you to Westchester. You, you remember Damien? Remember him? He's there. It's a friend for you. Like, it's it's just something Do really... Miami kind of played like you? Then... <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe don't tell him that part. Yeah. But... <laughs> I guess I'll go with the same tact I went to in Monroe. Find the logic in this for me. Uh, uh, I was going to make a bad joke. Anyway, I'll answer. Um, I, I think this one is pretty uh, simple. I think it, it comes down to he trusts uh, Jason Terry. And I, I'm not saying that as – that sounded like I had a, a biting – uh, no, I mean you're a chairman of the Jet Supporters Club. I like, I don't like Jet slander. I've always had a soft spot for Jason Eugene Terry. And, <laughs> uh, to, I know he struggled, but to say he's unplayable, I mean, he was very good against the Warriors. Very good. Very good. And something, something else he was doing constantly, and he was the only guy in on the team doing it. When they got up early, he was working really hard to get the crowd into it really yes. hard and sure. that mightn't seem important but that that is a that is an old veteran move that is i mean you're a young team you're starting to build some momentum against arguably the best team in the league what do you want to do to sort of stay on top of that you want to get the crowd involved and he really did i haven't heard i i'm okay i've probably heard the bradley center louder i haven't heard the bradley center heckle like that for quite some time I don't it, was know cons- you- it was consistent. It wasn't 
I, obviously, we can probably compare it to last year's Warriors game, um, but those are different. There was like a weight to it all. Last time was like kind of just this. I don't know what you. I don't know how to like describe it, but it was just there was like an like, edge. There was an edge to the atmosphere last year, right? Yes, last year. Last year was basically just like let's beat them, let's beat this streak. Like there was an intent behind it. Like this one was just like let's just have fun, screw up something. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like this kind of like. Uh, uh, I th- I think it was the whole. This is insane, but the the books and the Warriors have a really genuine rivalry. Like this. There, there really is this sort of weird now thing that has organically happened there where, okay, for the book side of it, it involves players who are really no longer with the team, like OJ Mayo, Michael Carter-Williams. Guys <laughs> like that were joining forces last year, but maybe Greg Monroe should be included in that category. But <laughs> um, it's sort of now, I, I think... It wasn't hard for like once once Jet started sort of waving his arms about. Uh, I don't mean in imitation of an airplane, although he did some of that too. But once he started waving his arms around, jeeing up the crowd, it it didn't take much for them because I think the whole the comments post post loss for the Warriors in the Bradley Center last year they still ring true. Their actions after their win in Oakland, there was a bad taste there, and I I. Honestly, found it fascinating, and I'm for a long time. I, I hate the Warriors. I won't even. I won't sugarcoat that in any way. I absolutely despise them. And there's this thing that I'm still amazed by when Steve Kerr comes out and he talks about if anyone has a ten and three T-shirt made up and it comes true, you'll get tickets to Oracle from me. And this whole conversation came up again pre-game because Stephen Curry, unanimous MVP comes up to care and goes oh do you think they're gonna have 10 and 3 t-shirts printed up like that still just rankles in the locker room a little bit that is insane to me no wonder this team blew a 3-1 lead you've gotta if that's if that is the focus i mean that you come into you come into milwaukee and you're still thinking about t-shirts from last year uh it's but it's a bizarre thing but all of this feeds into a team who was probably easy for books fans to dislike to begin with. They have now added Kevin Durant and that makes them everyone's enemy just because it's not fair. Like I was, I was impressed by there was, I like never once was able to identify the man with my eyes, but my ears were able to identify one man who repeatedly and vociferously wanted to let Clay Thompson know that, some horrible aggregating sites thought he was going to Boston. I don't know, maybe Clay wants to go to Boston because it didn't put him off. If anything, he he shot better every time Boston was mentioned. But I've got sidetracked here. <laughs> you, you that, that all came out of you saying kid trusts Jason Terry more and me jumping to Jason Terry's defense and saying he was good against the Warriors. Uh, what I'll do to get back on track and say is he was absolutely abysmal the rest of the week <laughs> and the rest of the season. So uh, it's a very, I don't think this is talked about in the time since, but Vaughn and Monroe's situations are very similar. Very. As in they have both 
completely outperformed expectations for what they could be this season based on how bad they were last year. In Monroe's case, it's probably unfair to say how bad, but it's really how bad of a fit he was and maybe how how much of a negative impact he had on the books. But these are two guys who've come out and had some really big games, shown great effort, energy, their attitude has seemed to be absolutely perfect. And I don't know, for whatever reason, now neither of them are really in the rotation in a meaningful way. And Bond was, was the last game he played? Uh, a Hawks game? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I think he, uh, he played like 30 seconds against the Heat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Blowout loss, he only got 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, it is eerily similar in, you know, different circumstances, but still ultimately the same kind of weird bubble that they're both in. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the reason Kid gives for this, is, I mean, we didn't even need to hear the quote to notice, but is that he wants to get him time and whatever. So Rashad Vaughn made his D-League debut for this season anyway, um, this evening. <laughs> We record this Sunday night for the Westchester Knicks. You watched it, so I'll get your reaction to that in a minute. But just very simply for everyone, he played 11 minutes. I mean, you're, you're sending him to the D League to to get some burn. He's, I understand that the Westchester Knicks are like they are their own team of guys who are there for the year. And they want to be good, and they have maybe I, I'm not even sure what the record is like at the moment, but. Let's say they have a cohesive unit. They definitely played well today. They, they won in a blowout. But they're not just going to go and give him all of the minutes you want. This is the challenge in when it's not your D-League team. But Westchester Knicks are 3-1 and one to start the year, by the way. So they're a pretty good team. The problem with that is what is, what is 11 minutes going to do for him? And how long does he have to be there before they trust him in a bigger role where he's going to get that sort of meaningful experience? Because I know the reaction to this for most people, and I understood it, was why are you sending Vaughn to the D-League when Ton Maker's getting no time sitting on the bench? And I do get that, but at the same time, I could only I could only run with that they feel they need to keep a closer eye on Ton. They need their say strength and conditioning people working with him daily. They want their coaches to be the one to shape him at this early and probably critical juncture in his development. They don't want to send him to the D-League to get minutes but pick up bad habits where they feel, okay, Vaughn has been around the team for a year now. He knows a little bit about what he should do, what he shouldn't do. We can afford to send him to play. And if that's that's the logic and that, that's fine. But I just don't get where they think the minutes are going to come from unless this is a plan to leave him down there for like seven, eight, ten games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the challenge in all this is that you're sending him to a team that is defined. They want to develop their own players that the whole organization is invested in. You know, they have a fair amount of names to, uh, you know, develop, grow, all that stuff. And then sending him to a, a team that has – so you're sending him to a team that has that, and then it's obviously not uh, related to you. You don't have a D-League team or a system in place like that. And he has to learn a new system. Uh, he probably 
I mean, anything could change, obviously, but how much time is he really going to get? He's gonna. He's also going to play second fiddle to Nick's guys, like Ron Baker is there, for example. Ron Baker, they had a couple. Uh, Jerron Lamb is there. Anthony, Anthony Early is there. I feel like they, the Knicks waived him, but obviously he's a player they once liked, and he's still there. Like I'd feel if you're plugging extra minutes into your rotation for wings, neither early or Baker play tonight. I don't know. You might know more if there was injuries or anything. But it would seem to me that an organization that is owned and run by the New York Knicks, if their coach was to introduce more wings into the rotation for minutes, and the option is between everyone, Rashad Vaughn is going to get the least amount of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, that's. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If he he's gonna play, but is it really? Is it gonna be most? Our game's gonna be out of hand, and that's where he comes in. Is it just? You don't know. You. It's basically you're out of. Once you send him there, it's out of your control what they do. Because um, they're their own organization. They have their own. You know, ways of working. They have their own. You know, ways to evaluate what is successful and all that stuff like that's what's so kind of weird about this with Vaughn is that the fact that you know we're saying he's improving he's shown more flashes this year than he practically did last year um it's it's weird obviously there was gonna be a this challenge of trying to develop him but also have Terry play uh, a role as like a veteran guy within uh, next to the, you know, uh, like Giannis Jabari. And obviously they need a shooting too. Um, but it's still, it's odd. I don't know. It's just, it's just a weird kind of, it's out of left field. That's for sure. And uh, there's a couple of questions I have out of it is, well, is 11 minutes in the D league really worth more than playing five minutes in the NBA? Mm. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't think it is because at the end of the day, you're not building him up to be a D league player. And those 11 minutes, particularly when they're not going to be like in your system or, or teaching him something extra. If it was your D league team and he's playing in the exact same sort of philosophy and style, well then absolutely twice the minutes. That's perfect. It's just more reps. But when he's doing something different, I don't know if that counts. And the other part of it, like it's easy for us to say, oh, well, he's developed and he's improved and we've seen that with his performances. Before any of us saw that with his performances, Jason Kidd was banging the hell out of that drum. This is where Vaughn was going to be a starter to start the year. This is where even once he's once he sort of struggled starting the year, you continue to talk about just how impressed they've all been with how much Vaughn has grown. And that's a really strange sort of about turn to make in a short period of time. Of course, it's nothing terminal, and it's not like they're, they've given up on Vaughn, but it's just strange. And I, I do think even in that Warriors game where Terry plays well, there was a glaring need for like why you don't just disregard Vaughn for any stretch of games. And that was even with Terry playing well, a lot of his time playing well, he was matched up with Patrick McCaw. And mm-hmm. although McCaw is obviously faster, more athletic, he's younger, he has all those advantages. He does, he's like a deer in the headlights still. And he's playing like 
one of the most experienced veterans in the league. So that's, as a matchup, that's perfect. The problem was, and to kids' credit, he didn't let this go on too much longer than needed, but there was about two minutes. Might have been late third or early in the fourth quarter where I want to say Delhi, maybe maybe it was Brogdon and Jed out there, but Terry was ending up in Clay Thompson. And Clay Thompson's eyes like could not light up anymore, and he was making every jump shot that came his way. It was like that... Michael Beasley seeing Doug McDermott. <laughs> it's, a, it's very much like that, and that was at a time in the game where Stephen Curry was struggling. Kevin Durant had cooled off. He had twenty-five points in the first half. I think he finished with thirty-two, and the books actually gave a sort of two-minute spell to Clay Thompson. Just because that was the time where, okay, this is where two minutes. We thought Monroe only played two minutes. If Vaughn was only to play two minutes, but he was to cover over that spell in a something that's closer to an even matchup in terms of athleticism, length, anything like that, that's fine. And once Tony Snell came back in, the books were able to put a run together. And I just felt for me that was one where, yeah, they needed to give Snell a bit of rest. They needed to have part of the bench in a little bit longer but they had cheated themselves out of one of their bench members who could have had some time on that kind of player it's going to be interesting to watch i don't this is it's not similar to last year when inglis went down i think didn't vaughn and inglis briefly have some time together there last year uh maybe not not the same team not the same team uh vaughn wasn't with the westchester knicks but was Vaughn with Canton Charge, who they ironically played. Uh, no, tonight. I don't know. English was with the Canton Charge. I don't know if that was Vaughn. No, Vaughn was also at Canton too. Was he? Okay. Yeah. Like the hard thing is just knowing how long they leave him there, and what the thinking on that is. And obviously, that's fluid. As in, if he continues to just get eleven minutes, they might say, "Well, this is." counterproductive let's bring him back or jason terry could be injured tomorrow and miss the next game and they need him back for cover it's just really what is what is the idea behind it and that's a bit of a mystery to me i don't know what he's gonna get there particularly he wasn't in, i mean i'll learn steve novak jokes aside Novak is a great luxury, as you know, he's going to be the guy not to dress every night. So it's not like you are going to have to have Vaughn in street clothes on the bench, not having any opportunity to come into a game. So it just seems like a strange thing to me. I don't know. Strange things galore. We'll move on. Jason Kidd's decisions, just so we get away from strange things. Um, the two things we've talked about, firstly, are both Jason Kidd's decisions. Like, I feel Vaughn, Vaughn going to the Westchester Knicks. I don't know if we really know in any organization just how that process works, but that, to me, doesn't seem like something where John Hammond and Justin Zanuck just decide themselves oh yeah we should send Vaughn to the D-League by the way Jason you have one less player to work with now 
I'm guessing that streak goes the other way where he says, you know what, I think Rashad could do it some time in the D-League. Let's see what can happen. Aside from that, Kidd has made a number of interesting decisions. We'll come to judgments on them as we go through them this week in-game and around some other details. I guess, firstly, to start on one of the more positive things for the first time really under his reign and maybe at any stage in the franchise's history the books sort of comfortably and regularly trotted out centerless lineups this week true small ball as everyone in the NBA loves to talk about but only a handful of teams can really fully roll with and the books did quite well but it. it got them back into the game against the Hawks it saw them sort of hang tight with the Warriors during a crucial stretch where conventional wisdom would suggest going small against the Warriors playing their game that's not ideal the books made it work for them and Steve Kerr actually spoke after the game about how that presented them challenges they weren't really prepared for against the books because their spacing was so much better that the Warriors just couldn't switch off on Toledovic. A small ball lineup with Mirza was quite a handful for Golden State. What was your feeling on Kid going small ball on how he came to turn to a centerless lineup? And I guess your feelings on how much of it we should see going forward. Um, well, for the Hawks game, it was definitely a uh, let's go with this because nothing else. It was a go for broke move, really, because up until that point, I want to say they were they were they were making it a tighter game than where it was. Obviously, that second quarter was just completely abysmal. I want to say they were. It was getting closer to single digits before the fourth quarter. I'm trying to. Yeah, I think you're right. It might have been sort of in the nine to twelve range, fluctuating. Say. Yeah, and then uh, once you kind of realize, oh yeah, there's no true center. There's no true center. There's no Plumley, Monroe, or Henson playing. It's Giannis and Mirza playing as like interchangeable four and five. And it was working. I, I know they're plus seven in the fourth quarter of that game. And obviously the game was well within reach to take, uh, if not for, you know, mistakes here or there. But it was, a, it was definitely a, a success uh, against the Hawks. So kind of I, – I wrote – Takeaways piece that night, and I was just thinking like, it is interesting to see, to see him throw that out, even though it is a totally go for broke, nothing, you know, uh, just trying something to like, you know, at least chase a win, make it respectful, all that stuff. I just thought it was interesting the fact that it, it's coming on, you know, it's a game before or two games before you play Golden State, who you obviously have had success against playing. Not small ball, but you have a very uh, good roster to you know give him a good you know a lot of trouble with. So the fact that he went to it 
Sunday or Sunday, Saturday night. And it was kind of, I wouldn't, it, it's, there's different situations where the game was starting to break open. It was like, I think Warriors were up by 14 or something like that. And then they, like you said, guys like Curry, Durant, uh, Clay was, you know, keeping them afloat really offensively. But they're, the fact that they play at such a fast, or at least that night they were, uh, playing at a fast pace and just hitting any shots in that time frame before, like, the you know, final two and a half minutes or so. It was kind of, like, striking to see it work when, you know, they were down by 14 with, I guess, I think it was, like, six and a half minutes left. I mean, the game, if, if it didn't work that – or it could have been just another, like, nine points by Golden State, and the game – we would have been saying this game was over kind of thing. And the fact that it worked so well and they – they had chances to really seal the game, but for whatever reason, um, you know, they couldn't. Uh, it's given me a lot of it's, – it's definitely promising to see them really work well with getting – have uh, different kind of – it's not even just, like, the same guys either out there. I know you brought up the Terry thing, but, like, the fact that, like, it worked well with Brogdon, I, get, I think, instead of Delhi for – the Hawks game, I can't remember if that was the case last night, but even like Snell coming in or Terry, even though he, you know, like you said, he was Clay Thompson's eyes lit up when he saw him. But the fact that there I mean, are different off, parts, offensively, I think offensively, yes. If if they take their centers out of the game, offensively, it's like there's no way for it not to work to their benefit because we talk about all the book spacing challenges. If you move Yanis to center. Well, he's a better, he's a pretty good three points shooter for a center. And then <laughs> if Jabari's willing to shoot and you can surround Jabari with Delhi and Snell and Taletovich or sort of replace some of them for, as you said, Brogdon and Terry, if Vaughn was there, Vaughn, whatever. All of a sudden, you've got a, a full sort of shooting capable lineup, which is implausible otherwise for the books because they don't have any center who can space the floor even remotely. The one, the one thing I'd, I disagree with you on is I found it a more reactive move against the Hawks than a proactive one. I definitely, of course, it's it's interesting. It's curious that it came two games before they faced the Warriors. But I do entirely chalk that down to coincidence. The Hawks, yeah, yeah. the Hawks were having to play their own small ball by the nature of Dwight Howard being out. Tiago Splitter is permanently out, basically. So they had Mike Muscala, who really entered the NBA as a power forward. It's just the sort of shift towards more mobile shooting guys has made him a center. And then when he sat, you were looking at one of Humphreys or Millsap playing minutes at center. I would have to go back and try to actually pinpoint the moment that happened, but I would feel very confident in saying that one of Humphreys or Millsap was probably at center for Hawks at the time. Mm. And still, you have to do it. That is something with Kid that, I mean, is a little disappointing for me. I do feel he is a reactionary coach. 
Yeah. We'll talk to we'll talk very shortly about when he does make decisions and that's that's revisiting something we've done before. When he is proactive, I think there can be something different behind that. But a lot of his stuff in game can be reactionary and whether he's been in the time since he's been proactive with it because he got some confidence in that group. But I think its origin was complete fluke, completely reactionary. I don't think it was something where he was just waiting for a chance to go small ball like that and went, you know what, this is it. We're playing the Warriors soon. Why not try it now? It was fortune that brought it together. As you said, worked very well, but I do think mm, a little bit of a fluke and sort of getting a look at it and getting to see that it could work well. Against, yeah, that, that's, that's totally true. Against the Warriors... I think there are a couple of things with this that are really important. And if the books are to look at small balls being something sustainable going forward, and that's what made it so interesting that once that became a thing that they got to match off against the masters of that style of play so quickly, because it can work for the books if Giannis is fully locked in and engaged defensively and is... I don't know. That's a very different role for him. He's sort of going to be right under the rim, and it's it's very different to what he's used to on defense. And when that comes about, it's got to be a case of you're the rim protector. You are the last line of defense. You can't take, say, gambles and going to block shots like you used to. Your position is important. Against the Warriors, he held his position very well. He 100% won the battle with Draymond Green when he was at the center spot, when both of them were at the center spot. And that was key. That was one big part of it. Because those of you who remember when I ran through the lineup options earlier, uh, centerless books lineup is taking a big hit defensively straight away. Just by virtue of having like Jabari and Toledovic side by side out there or something like that. Possibly with Jason Terry beside them. It's pretty dicey stuff. So having Yanis be able to do that, really important. The other part, and I really felt this got underplayed. Um, I noticed it last night when I watched most of the second half live. And then I rewatched the game today and it jumped out of the screen at me. And that was, I thought Delvadova's defense in the second half on Steph Curry was by far the best defense I've seen from Delhi in a books jersey mm-hmm. and probably the best defense I've seen on Curry since sometime in the past when Delhi guarded Kevin Love. Yeah, that's a, that's a good call too. <laughs> um, I was talking with Ty, Ty Windish, or sometimes partner in crime and the co-side expert with me at the site earlier today and Ty, Ty didn't really see this, and he was sort of, I don't know, he was chalking a lot of it to Curry having an off night, and Curry did have an off night. He had 20 points. That is an off night for Stephen Curry. But what was really important in that, and I found it interesting, Ty said to me, he said, look, you can say Delhi had a good defensive night. If Curry had switched it on, there was no stopping him. There's no one, no one in the world who could stop him. I said, yeah, that's fine. But he, he wasn't on. He was off. 
and there's a difference between trying to stop him when he's on rather than trying to keep him cold when he's off. And I thought Delhi did that absolutely brilliantly. And um, mm. he applied pretty heavy pressure like he always does, but he knew when to set, sag back. And what was sort of intriguing to watch when the books were small, the Warriors kind of ran out of ideas and their offense was very stagnant and they went looking for the same play every time and as understandable as it was why they were going to it they were getting no success because it became really obvious and that was they wanted to isolate Toledovic in a mismatch against Kevin Durant mm-hmm. and they got it at least twice I think they may even have got it three times and say a four minute spell and they couldn't score on any of maybe the first misses fortuitous after that though the books were sort of there and they're ready for it and it was jabari was guarding durant at the time and once again credit to jabari who has taken more than his share of flack deservedly so for his defense he was doing about as good a job as you'd expect most guys to do against durant and the durant too was on form but in this spell then say Draymond would come across to set a screen and they'd work the mismatch. And there was no panic from the books. The letter happened. They were confident. They knew what the Warriors were doing and they could deal with it. And I just found it interesting that that lineup, more than even what they were able to do themselves in going forward and sort of creating offense, that it was such a disorientating look for a team like Golden State that they then were sort of falling back into trying to get Durant ISO plays on what they felt was a mismatch. There was no signs of ball movement. There was no creativity. Guys like Clay and Steph were getting slightly isolated in that spell. That to me is fascinating if the books can do the equivalent of that to other teams by trying that lineup out there. That might be the thing that interests me the most about it. Yeah, definitely. It's basically just going back to where you started offensively. It's basically just like their picture the Bucks at their best last year, even you know, not last year, just their best offensively and putting you know the right things around uh, Giannis and Jabari, all that stuff, knowing high IQ guys, knowing where to go and all that stuff. It's basically just like them, like their offense on steroids. Because they just play so frantically, and it feel at least last night it felt like it kind of ended this way just because of how the game went. But still, like it kind of feels like anything at you know any moment it could just kind of come crashing down. But the fact that they already know how to play, you know, next to each other with you know guys like Tladovic and Delhi who are still new pieces trying to integrate next to them and all that stuff. The fact that, to me, the why it's, or the fact that it's working so well in, you know, I guess 24 minutes so far this season um, is kind of astounding. Like, I I totally agree with what you said. Like, it is reactive, but the fact that they're, it's fitting together and it's arguably without one of, you know, the, the kind of the, straw that stirs a drink in my mind with Chris Middleton 
Uh, I was nearly you. sure that was going to be Michael Beasley, considering your choice for for Michael Beasley gifts. Oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, I, I told. Oh, I wasn't even thinking that. Ah, oh, my day is ruined. Damn it. Anyway, uh, the fact that <laughs> the fact that if you know it's working with out with this you know uh, all around player like Middleton is even more impressive to me. Again, we could probably be we might be sitting here next week and if Kim plays it against the Magic Raptors and it looks uh, you know shaky, <laughs> I can just be saying like uh, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> you know the fact that it's standing out right now is you know. It's and that's something. that's in, that's entirely possible against say the Magic. They played the played the Magic twice this week, and the Magic are anti small ball to the extreme. Um, he, he did that against the Magic, and you could find yourself with like Aaron Gordon, Serge Ibaka, and Vucevic or Biombo all out there at once. And that goes one or two ways. That either goes that if you're sort of in your rhythm, you overwhelm them with small ball. And if you're not, they absolutely destroy you with size. So, Jeffrey. yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely possible. Um, I think the other thing, and you talked about sort of the frantic nature of it. If we thought like Plumlee was a great uh, rim runner or like a weapon to have at center in transition, well, Giannis is better. <laughs> Giannis is better. Well, not even just Giannis. I mean, even like Mirza, who. Not yeah, well, that's, rim running. but he he can be your trailer tree. He can be your trailer exactly, tree. Yeah, and that's where Draymond is very like Draymond is that position. He is that guy. He is that small ball center, mm-hmm. and he's comfortable with the ball in his hands. He can create for others. He can sort of get it and go end to end. But that's the kind of matchup where Giannis gets that rebound, which. If it's small ball for both teams, good chance Yanis is the biggest guy on the floor. He's going to get the rebound. Yeah. So Yanis gets the rebound. He can take that and go. And that's a real challenge defensively to get sort of with all four of those guys. Because say if it was if it's the starters minus the center and with Teletovic, Yanis gets that rebound. You're going to have Jabari like a light gun down the line he's looking for any sort of chance to get towards the rim to get into a position where you can make a cut in along the baseline you're gonna have delhi sort of frantically going there and there as well probably looking for a corner you're gonna have Teletovic going for the sort of slightly just the, that spot on the right wing where he likes to go to not just the transition <laughs> but basically as often as he possibly can mm-hmm. and you're gonna have tony snell who has the athleticism to maybe go towards the rim, or he can also stay back. And then you've sort of three perimeter shooters, and Jabari and Yanis is coming at you like a freight train with the ball. I mean, I do feel very strongly that the longer that lineup is out there together, um, <laughs> the whole rule of diminishing returns would kick in in a very big way. Mm-hmm. But if you can pick the right moments and give it, we'll say eight to 10 minutes a night, that could be eight to 10 minutes a night to decide the outcome of a match. If the game is really close and you pick your moments for that, that could get you, even if it's just a six-hour run. 
in the end, that could be what swings the game in your favor. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see if he keeps using that. And that's another one that if Monroe does find his way back into the rotation, if he does start playing three centers again, does he have room for that? And it's easy to say, well, he shouldn't. Well, he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't have three centers playing again anyway. But the thing that I find hilarious about this is we're only a week removed from the books playing some really good basketball with three centers playing. Yeah. And whatever, the one might be playing very limited minutes, but more often than not, all three centers were playing. So that's part of what I find puzzling. And when Kid says, no, we're playing two centers, and as if he's decided three centers can't work because it was working really well about two weeks ago. <laughs> they were playing mm. some really great basketball with three centers getting on the floor at some point or another. Getting back to some of the things we talked about earlier, but framing them from kids' point of view. Long-time listeners will have heard us do this before. One of my biggest criticisms of kid, you might have to go back a while to find one of these podcasts now, um, I was sort of still am in full let's give him the benefit of the doubt mode which I may never resort to again if this keeps going as it's going but one of my biggest issues with Kid was and now is that a lot of the time I feel his moves are made for shock value they are drastic they are borderline reckless and they are reactionary in the extreme and i can't help but feel that after after say uh was last week was that the three game win streak that was, that was uh two weeks two weeks ago two weeks ago yeah okay but then last week there were one and two right why am I already forgetting this? I, no, I, no, they were one and one. They okay. lost the Pelicans game and they won the Grizzlies game. Okay. So that's a, stra- a spell of five games where they had gone four and one. Yeah, I think that's right. So they got through a spell of five games where they're four and one, and then they come in. Four and two. Four and two. Four and two? Okay. Yeah. Regardless of that, good spell, good spell of form for the books. Yes. I didn't even think about it, but I mentioned earlier, Monroe played his seven minutes against the Hawks, and he played those seven minutes as normal in the first half. And you know very well that the second quarter of that game, everything fell to pieces. And the books yes. put in, I don't know, maybe their worst quarter in, I don't know, maybe four years, maybe since yeah. they were... The f- oh, that's it's either that or, I know point totals, but I mean the the Heat game, the fourth quarter of that game was equally a, a you know just terrible, just awful. But in I, terms I, of point totals, probably the worst point or quarter in a long time. Maybe the only other time I could think of them, they were they were bad against the the Heat. I don't disagree with that, but I just feel they did not show up for that second quarter against the Hawks. Like not even the slightest. And the only other time I could think back to where that happened, and it's this is amazing because there were a lot of blowouts last year, uh, but they were just consistently bad in every quarter. 
Uh, but the last time I could think of that happening is probably game six of oh, series with the Bulls. Yeah. That might be the last time. And they had, I think, two of those quarters against the Bulls in that game. <laughs> um, so that stands out. And then for Monroe not to play that second half, to be a DMP the next night and to get two minutes against the Warriors. For Rashad Vaughn to end up in the D-League, I'm always intrigued by the timing when kid makes sort of statement moves. Actually, I know, not to cut in to what you're saying again, but let's throw in Pl- uh, Henson starting over Plumley. Yeah, that was that was the heat game. That, that, was, started, that was the Grizz, yeah, Grizzlies game, yeah. And talk about, I mean, not to go back into this, but we're probably are going back into this. Talk about, you know, trying to build, saying build someone's confidence and all that stuff. We're taking away Plumley's starting position, and I know we had this discussion before, but I'm guessing it, it is pretty important to him, especially the fact that he started the season and he wants to keep it being a starter. The fact that you take it away, but you're probably even playing him even more now than you what you were when he was struggling. It's just um, mixed messages everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it is that's what that's another layer into the Monroe thing that doesn't necessarily have to do with Monroe, but it's just like it comes back to this, like, what is, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> constantly scratching your head. I mean, you could probably find, like, 5,000 pictures of Jesus kid scratching his head on Google. I know I have found, like, three of them already, but <laughs> that's basically what it is. Do you feel, though, there is? I mean, right, it could very much be coincidental, but I just think it's when these things happen. It's when, it's like when the books have some sort of big blow-up event in a game, things will blow up nearly in a bigger way off the court pretty soon after. And that, to me, is just like, oh, it's desperation coaching. That's really what yeah, it is. Um, I'm forgetting exactly which podcast, but I want to say it was the Low Post podcast, the most recent one. When Kevin Arnovitz is talking about, I can't remember the context, but he was talking about like coaches using scare tactics versus, uh, yeah, it was definitely low post podcast. He's talking about coaches using scare tactics, scare tactics compared to uh, making lineup moves that they truly believe will really work. And we talked about, I know we talked about this last year. Uh, probably around this time when the Hornets game where he makes the sweeping change to have NCW and Jabari come off the bench. And then I know we talked about it later where we're just like, if you pinpoint it to that point in the season, that's him saying like, this this is a lost cause and considering the context of where they were at that point. Um, it certainly, I, I believe it even more now, but um now these moves and it's you know they're five and seven or it was you know not even ten games of the season and you can you know experiment with lineups and obviously Plumlee struggling all this stuff but the fact that it it starts to build up to the point where you know you take Plumlee out of the starting lineup but he's starting to play and then Monroe's. At the same time, whether we know it or not, whatever happened, all this stuff, Monroe's role starts to get, you know, 
decrease. Shot Vaughn starts playing inter back there intermittently, or if it was either or, it's now very little. Um, and then it's, I mean, we're 12 games of the season. What's going to happen? We're, you know, we're trying to figure out where it goes from here. And it's just like this constant, and obviously some of it, I know we talked about this offline, we've already talked, we've talked about probably in the summer a lot. Some of it is built in, the fact that the roster is kind of in a weird spot, especially without Middleton, who's this, you know, glue piece. Um, that's going to happen. Things like that happen at this point of the season, especially if you're five and seven. But the fact that it's already happening and it feels like it's just like, you know, cranking it up even more, you know, turning up the dial or, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's like, where's this weird Jason Kidd uh, <laughs> experiment going to go next? Like, is it going to, I'm not saying it's going to go back to where it was, where it started last year, but the fact that it's, we're talking about these moves and it's, it's mid-November. It's almost Thanksgiving. Like, where? I, I, it's even I don't know. more, Jordan, that it's the books are, and now they are not even when the moves were made. They were technically when these moves were made, they were above five hundred slash five hundred. We're pinpointing that Hawks game or after that Hawks game was the point where things started to get a little bit different. No, they're five and seven, and I mean, what were our expectations when Middleton went down? They're doing pretty well. I mean. They've got a week coming up where I would still favor them, even though the Magic have picked things up. I would favor them to beat the Magic twice. Being the books, they probably won't do that, but I would favor them to do that. And with that, then, you're saying, well, is it completely unthinkable that they could get a home win against the Raptors? Of course it's not. So a week from now, they could be 8-7 and seven again. And I don't know what the drastic need for anything is just yet. What I'll say... Uh, I mentioned this to you. I don't, I don't know if you even got round to it, but just in speaking about this, and you mentioned Kevin Arnovitz. Kevin Arnovitz had a really great podcast last week, uh, True Hoop Conversations podcast with Neil Shea, the general manager of the Portland Trailblazers. And I can't recommend this any more highly for books fans because I guess the first 15, 20 minutes is... It could be just just basically replace Damian Lillard's name with Giannis, and it could be a conversation with John Hammond about the books. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a really sort of frank, open conversation that we don't generally get from a books perspective. But what Kevin Arnovitz wanted to explore with him was, you look out on the draft, you didn't have like a top three pick, and you get a guy like Damian Lillard in Portland's case, and it changes your franchise completely, and you have a bona fide superstar, and you're trying to get the best out of him, you're trying to develop him, and you're also trying to build a winning team around it. And it was really the, the sort of the whole question about at what point do you build the team around that guy? How do you do it? Why do you do it? And what are you looking for along the way? And Neil Shea is, I know you'll agree with this, but I would say he is easily one of the smartest GMs in the NBA. Mm -hmm. um, Evan Turner, contract aside, he is sort of incredibly progressive and I feel like he doesn't overthink things. He, Anytime I hear him speak, he uses very sort of clear, straightforward, defined Concise. logic. 
very concise and that has paid off and he breaks down the whole well basically just not pulling any punches i mean if you're a portland player and you're listening you'd be like oh wow okay um this is really all about dame and the rest of us are just here and that would even probably apply to like cj mccollum who just signed his own 105 million deal this summer mm-hmm. that's a very interesting insight from a general manager's point of view and there's real parallels to the books what with that sort of I don't know what, what what's triggered me to reference that or tell people to check that it is. As you said, the books roster is in a strange place because of Middleton. But when we talk about the whole guys not knowing their role and continuity, the one thing the books can't be criticized for is not having a clear direction this summer. They really went in and they made all the moves that it seemed like were designed to build the team around Yanis in the same way that the Blazers built a team around Damian Lillard. And if you've done that, you've got to, you've, you've paid the money, you've paid Plumlee to be there for four years. So you've got to have the trust to ride out the storm and lose some games and have him look horrible, but guys to really sort of mesh together, fit. And it's easy to say Plumlee was there last year and he was fine, so that doesn't apply. But of course it does, because Delhi wasn't there last year. Snell wasn't there last year. Toledovic wasn't there last year. Jason Terry, Brogdon, Tom, Beasley. Beasley. And maybe more important than any of that, you had Chris Middleton as the ultimate glue guy to hold all of last year's together. So even for returning guys, it's a challenge at the start of this year to fit in. It's not like just, oh, I'm with the same team, the same core guys are there. The same core guys are there, but literally every other supporting guy has changed mm-hmm. that takes some getting used to and so far what the books have shown is they're gonna keep jumping from pillar to post going with one move after the other and i sort of feel like you know what let them lose five games in a row to then get to a point the other side of it where everything is really cohesive and you can play the rest of the season to 500 and really make progress and if you miss the playoffs because of that five game stretch you missed the playoffs because of it, but do you know what? You're a better team next year. And with the books now, because they've committed that money and they've sort of reduced the cap flexibility they're going to have in the coming seasons, that is now important because it's not like, well, let's just get as many wins as we can this year. There might be a period next year where we have to adjust to new guys again. Except for minor sort of minimum level, mid-level exception kind of additions, it's not going to be the case. It's going to take trades for that to be sort of major adjustments. And with that, now is the time where you just, okay, we hopefully already did all the necessary sort of homework on this. We've got the guys we need for our team to function as best as it can. And now we've got to trust in that work. And for me, like, there's something really hypocritical in a team who I'm sure are telling, like, Yanis and Jabari to trust in the work they put in their jump shot in the practice court when the coach comes along and I don't feel like he's trusting in the work that his front office, or as many would say, he himself actually put in in the summer in building this team. And I feel like that's, that's a really important thing in terms of when he's making reactionary decisions, they're not just stupid because these are like 
unnecessary reflex moves. They're stupid because now is the time where you've got to let the team settle and for better or worse, write it out and let's really find what we have here. I I can't see what you gain from making big judgments or sweeping statements out of losing to the winless Mavericks, uh, losing to the winless Pelicans, having the second quarter from hell against the Hawks, getting blown out by the heat. There is a, a sort of... There is a scenario where those four games could be your four worst details. It could be the four worst things you do all season and they all just happen to come at the same time. Things like that aren't uncommon in the NBA, but you're nearly creating potential for those sort of lapses to prolong throughout the season by not addressing the problems, kind of running away from them. Yeah, yeah, I mean... That was a big uh, rant. I'm so, sorry, Jordan. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. And we're all capable of rants, no matter what size they are. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Anyway, uh, yeah, and it's not just about this decision. It's about, you know, you know, we talked about this last couple of weeks. This kind of point honest, is just a thing. This, it, I mean, it's kind of... I guess this, this stuff has been here the for the majority. It's definitely been here for the majority of the season because they're only 12 games in. But there's all these kind of different, I don't know, just it's whether it's a line of change or role, you know, how roles are being played within, uh, you know, the whoever's on the court or. Uh, I guess personnel decisions now, you know, moving or sending Rashad Vaughn to the D League, all that stuff. It's everything, like you said, I, I'm just basically just reiterating what you're saying, but it is just kind of based in this reactionary, reactive, all this uh, re- reactive place where, as you said, like what what judgments are we going to make? And it doesn't make sense. I mean, we're, the team that we were talking about. Uh, this time last year was, I mean, they're a bad team, but how they finished the season was pretty much, I would say, a lot different than uh, where they began. And we're probably going to have the same, we're going to see the same thing. We saw the year, not last year, the year before that too. I mean, 12 games in, 12 games in, and the fact that this stuff is already happening, it's just, it's uh, I, I get nervous because you just don't know where it's going to end up, especially considering our history of just kidding out three seasons in. Yeah, I just I just like to see some consistency. That's all. Yeah. I feel you're really not doing yourself or your players anything but a disservice if you just can't trust in what the plan was to begin with i mean it's just got to be sort of write it out and if it if it goes horribly wrong it goes horribly wrong and everyone then has to take a hard look at themselves and take the flack for whatever but if you think this is your answer if you think this is something that can lead to this team sort of 
being one of the most successful teams in the league in the coming years, potentially challenging for titles, even really just being a good, consistent playoff team who, who knows, might have like one Pistons or Mavericks-esque season where the breaks go your way and you go from being the consistent playoff team to sneaking through for a championship. If anywhere on that scale is your goal, you've just got to really give things a chance to settle and develop a little bit more organically. I just, there's something about trying to force everything and everything that goes wrong doesn't have to be remedied. There's some things you let, let them happen, let them go wrong. And particularly because this is a young team that guys learn. I want to just, before we move off kids' decisions, because you brought up Point Yanis, and I had forgotten this, but I want to I wanna just touch on the explanation Kid gave for the sort of Delhi initiating versus Yanis initiating. Get your thoughts on it. Uh, Brew Hoops, Eric Neem, tweeted this out. By pre-game, I think it was. Um, the quote from Kid when asked on why Delhi has been initiating more than Yanis or even Jabari, he said, I think it's just a matter of the game, the flow of the game, understanding who is starting it and who is going to finish it. Classic Kidism so far. Who is on the second side taking advantage of different scenarios that we see? Putting Yanis in a better position to be successful or Jabari or Delhi. I think in that last game, there was a lot more pick and rolls with Delhi starting it and understanding Miami is a team that does a lot of good things in the first pick and roll. But can we get an advantage with the second pick and roll? Just seeing also how different guys handle different scenarios of running the pick and roll. Is there anything in that? Like, I mean, is there is there anything there at all? Or is he just saying pick and roll... A <laughs> say he hoping, said pick and roll a lot of times. He said pick knows. and roll as many times as uh, uh, the Miami Heat defend <laughs> the pick and roll. That was like his verbal tussle of trying to defend the pick and roll. Uh, I'm probably the only person that thinks that's funny. That's funny, but I, I'm I, smiling. I it's okay. I'm smiling. I know, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess. It's almost, again, it just goes back to this. You have to take things at face value, but you also just like, it's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, and I don't blame him. I probably would do the same thing just because I, I, I just find it funny. <laughs> but I, I, again, these explanations to me and whether this changes or not or uh, not ki- kids' answers, but like the, whatever role Delhi's playing Delhi at the point guard or initiating the offense compared to Giannis or whatever, uh, whether that changes or not, how he answers that question doesn't really like, oh, okay, okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't yeah. color, it, <laughs> color it any differently. It's either happening or it's not to me. So, part, part of why that interests me is a couple of things. First of all, I, when I read that answer and it's just him rabbiting on about the pick and roll, I mean, both Yanis and Delhi are, they're both very competent at running the pick and roll. I mean, I don't feel you have to go with Delhi over Yanis. Yanis can't do that. But sort of, I don't, and 
whittling down the initiation of the offense to just the pick and roll, <laughs> taking a lot of the creativity out of what like what the offense can be when Yanis runs it. He can he can do a lot more than just you don't have to just worry about the pick and roll when Yanis <laughs> is there. It can be a cornerstone part, absolutely. Yeah. The other part of it, I feel Delhi's Delhi has got quite a bit of criticism recently for his shooting, right? And his shooting has been bad by all accounts. Mm-hmm. If I was a books head coach, I think I would. I think I would be looking to take some of the pressure off him in terms of his shooting, because I think he's been better than he's getting credit for, and yet he's being viewed for a role that he's not being asked to play. Yeah. Uh, what What I mean by that is we're viewing, well, not us, um, a, a big section of the books fan base. They're sort of looking at Delvadova as, well, he was brought in to be like the off-ball shooter who could defend point guards for Yanis. And he's shooting like, I don't know where he's at at the moment, maybe low 40s and low 30s. It might be even worse than that in terms of a split. It might be better now after last night, actually. Last night he was okay. It's probably around that area. The thing with that is... Was it the Heat game, I think, where, say, he had zero points, mm-hmm. went 0 for 6-ish, maybe 0 for 7 from the field, but he had nine assists and only two turnovers. Mm-hmm. And if you are actually asking him, are you allowing him to run the offense more, Which what Bucks fan is actually wants Delhi to be, like, this go-to scorer, or they want him to be initiating the offense but making plays for himself mm. and if you can be even close to having regular games where you have nine points and only two tur- or, sorry nine assists and only two turnovers I really don't care how many points you've got I mean nine assists means you've created at least 18 points for your team mm. you know what I mean as opposed yeah. to what do we want to see Delhi hit take two shots, both three-pointers, and hit them both, and have six points, two assists, and only be like, and be, say, a 48% and a 40% shooter on a split? Or do you want to see him have zero points and nine assists? I don't know. There's there's a balance there, and I think he has to be judged on his role for that. And if, if I was kid, and that's a terrifying thought, I would do a lot of things differently. But... If I was Jason Kidd, one thing I would do is be maybe a little bit more honest. Because I think you can... I do it generally, but I'm talking specifically about this case. I think you can ease pressures on both guys. And Giannis isn't having to deal with sort of, oh, you're playing great, you're putting up great numbers, but you're not really being point Giannis. What's that about? What's the coach? Why is that not? And you're not dealing with Delhi sort of getting torn down for not making shots when actually if he's playing good defense and he's having a vast number of assists to very low turnovers, that's a very good thing. And of course I'm sort of zeroing in on a small sample size because turnovers have been a problem for him at times. He's shot well at other periods, but in the overall picture, I just feel like he's passed quite well. He's created quite well. And it's a different role for him too. He's never had to do as much of that at any other time in his NBA career. So I would have liked 
some sort of real answer and not just to answer that question, but also to sort of you know, help your guys out. This is mm-hmm. something that I think separates the best coaches in, in the NBA from those who are just mediocre. But it's something that generally fascinates me with the NBA. In a lot of other sports, soccer definitely, although there's maybe the lines are blurred a little bit more, baseball as far as I know as well, the guy who runs your team would be referred to as the manager and not the coach. And sometimes that can be splitting hairs and you're like, well, really, what is the what is the difference? But the one thing I like about the term manager is it also it kind of recognizes that you're not just making the decisions in terms of how your team should prepare and what they're going to do, but you're also managing your team. And with that comes managing the people within your team. Yeah. That man management aspect. I don't feel like I'm taking any leap in saying that has been a massive area of weakness for Jason Kidd, not just with the books, but really when he was like a coach in Brooklyn as well. He just, mm-hmm. he is not good at that right now. And I don't know, maybe because he was a player and he thinks about the game in such intricate detail and he focuses in on sort of so many of those aspects. I was going to say the X's and O's, but he really doesn't focus in on that at all. That's Joe Prunty does that. I just wonder if he neglects something that is really important and particularly with a young team, what's what is wrong with the arm around the shoulder? I mean, I feel there are more guys, whether you like them or not, whether they're in your long-term plans or not, no one ever comes back to you and sort of bites you for saying, Oh, look, you supported me. Or you tried to give me more confidence. And I think he could have done Delhi a favor there. And it wouldn't be the only example of the time he could have done a guy a favor. Moving on, I want to set you up to hit this one out of the park, Jordan. You have been saying to me for quite a while now that Yanis inbounding the ball is a problem. That it was something the books need to look at. And I feel like it's something that hasn't been talked about very often. I mentioned this when I did the takeaways for the Warriors game earlier today. When a game finishes the way that Books Warriors game on Saturday finished, you'll often hear people like, I don't know, pin the pin the loss in the end, considering the Books had chances on poor execution on the coach's part or lack of create poor, poor execution on the player's part or lack of creativity on the coach's part. Not not really drawing up plays of the quality they should have and there can be elements of truth to both but in the nba if you have the ball and it's late in the game and you've only got a certain amount of time to work with coach can drop the best play in the world and if you cannot get the ball in his play is not going to get any credit you're not going to get a chance to execute it efficiently this has been a problem for the books for a while under the radar. It showed up in a big way against Golden State with Yanis first and then Tony Snell in a much more decisive way in terms of the game's outcome. 
share your thoughts with us on Giannis the inbounder and I guess your general feelings on Milwaukee's inbounding difficulties in late in games. Uh, that that's a, just to go back to uh, uh, what you were saying before. I thought I do agree with Kid though in, in the fact that I've always said that Giannis is very good with one pick and roll, but when it goes to two. Uh, I just I had that joke loaded up for what, 20 minutes. Anyway, and it, um, was really, it was really worth it. Thanks for coming back. It to was me. very worth it. <laughs> anyway, um, I kind of think I, I I think he's bad at in body the ball, <laughs> but I think it's also kind of what we were talking about last week with his shooting. I feel like it's very similar in the fact that it's kind of the set play. You know how it's supposed to be uh, executed or there's actually time on the clock that there's, you know, or not on the clock, but there's time to get it in. So there's this kind of pressure filled moment where it's similar to like him last week where we're talking about the Grizzlies game where the ball comes to him, no one's in or, or like around him and they're, you know, slow to close him out. And he launches up, and it's you know this horrible air ball, or just clanks, you know, the front of the rim, like barely. And I kind of feel like it's we're talking about the same thing with him inbounding the ball, where Giannis is a great passer, and obviously he, I would say, and we've talked about this before, and a lot of us would say the reason for that is just because he is really good with his instincts. He knows where how that's working. And I feel like when plays are being drawn up, especially when, you know, uh, games are on the line, uh, it wasn't even just the Golden State game, uh, the Hawks game. I was doing uh, the uh, running the count that night, and there was a play where I can't remember how much – what was the lead? But it was basically just Bucks had a score. I, it, it, I, think, I think the game had got within – Four. I, I think it was within four, and the books had a chance. They missed. They came. The Hawks came down, and the books got to stop again. And then it was at the point where it was still four points, but the clock was against them, and they needed the score. Yeah, and he was inbounding the ball, and for some reason, I don't know why he did this because it just didn't make sense. But obviously, someone's defending him inbounding the ball. Jabari cuts to. Basically, like the above the break point or point um, in the three point arc, and he bounced the pass to him as someone is defending him, and then someone's chasing Jabari as he's trying to cut, you know, kick, presumably to, you know, uh, launch a quick three. And I just, it was one of those things where I, I don't know why it, it hasn't. There's this kind of a weird, uh, I guess it just doesn't translate, but I kind of feel like it goes back to what we talked about with the shooting where, again, no, everything's being drawn out for you. It's obviously you're inbounding the ball, especially when games are on the line or clutch situations, whatever you want to call it. The pressure's on you just to – it's a simple task to us, but it's obviously – it's just to get things going, to get the play moving, all that stuff. And it just it's weird to see him struggle the way he does just because it, you just don't – I don't know. I've 
I don't, I'm not to, I'm not professing to be this inbounding expert, but I really haven't seen a no, guy like this. I, I, I've got a theory on this that sort of expands upon your idea there. And uh, we, you've, you've often, you've often said this to me and we never really discussed it. And I don't know if that was maybe, maybe I was just going, yeah, well, on the list of books problems, Jordan, Yanis inbounding is not right at the top or whatever it was. But I don't know, we never quite gone there. But the word that I wanted to hammer home there while you were talking was was instinct. And I don't know if Yanis is a good passer, general sense of the word. I don't know if if you compare him with other guys. This is one we're we're both big fans of Jabari as a passer, and people are often very down on Jabari as a passer. But I think the thing is, Jabari is like, he's creative, but in a very fundamentally sound way. And with Yanis, Yanis's gift when it comes to passing is purely on instinct, and it's more creative. And I just wonder, does this come from his route to where he is now and his route to the NBA and not having sort of a traditional, I guess a traditional teaching path to the NBA, not having gone through a college system with college coaches, not having gone through like elite high school level coaching, basically not the lack of maybe structured top quality coaching or competition, whether that has, sort of hindered him in a way with this. Because I think when we talk about Yanis and everything Yanis is incredible at, and the reason he has like the nickname of the Greek freak, it's down to his raw physical tools, his athleticism, and really what he can make out of his natural gifts. And it's all those natural abilities and natural tools that give him this incredibly high ceiling. On the other hand, though, when you think of like, I know Yanis as a coached player. He really isn't at all. I don't know. I feel a lot of Yanis' smartest decisions, they come down to vision and they come down to him spotting something that someone else wouldn't see rather than just understanding the game so much that he's seeing something ahead of someone, if if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's that's definitely something that filters into inbounding because the obvious thing is, well, he's basically seven foot and he's got like one of the longest wingspans in the league. He's, he's a perfect inbounder. Why wouldn't he? He can see over guys and his arms are long enough that even if they're sort of in his face harassing him, he should be able to get the ball away. But it's not that simple because there's no other time where he is literally standing still set having to make a decision. There was no other time. His, yeah. his free throw shooting is the only other time, as we talked about, he takes forever, even though he's yeah. quite good at it. And he doesn't have forever in this situation. So there's no real comparison for when on the court he's there. He's completely set, and he has a matter of seconds, five, six seconds to get the ball away. And even when he does get the ball away, I'd be curious. I don't... I. I don't know what Joe Prunty was drawing up, say, for the play against the Warriors where 
I'd say four seconds past. He couldn't get the ball in his inbounds uh, in the last about 32 seconds left on the clock, I think. Couldn't get it in sort of early. Delhi came and showed for him, and he basically just had to give and go with Delhi. He basically dropped the ball off to Delhi, curled around the screen, got the ball back, and then went towards the lane. Mm-hmm. And, well, that all sounds very smooth. He got to the lane. He met a wall. He tried to spin out of it. He hit this horrible leaner and just wasn't even close. It was just a forced move from start to finish. And it was panic because time was running out. But that panic was born from, I don't know, him just not being able to react. And I made the comparison in the takeaways and looking at this again to probably the most famous books inbound play in recent years, which was Jared Dudley to Jared Bayless against the Bulls. And Jared Dudley is a he's a fine passer. He's a good passer. But he threw like an incredible eye of the needle pass that was more to do with his composure, his understanding than it was his passing ability. And that's something really interesting because then you get like next play up, 10 seconds left this time. Okay, you've got your stop. It's two point game, three and you win, two and it's overtime. And when the books huddle up, obviously it's decided, you know what, Tony Snell, he's inbounding this time. And I felt sorry for Tony Snell because I don't know if I've ever seen him inbound the ball before. All of a sudden he has to get it in with 10 seconds left with a chance to beat the Warriors and not one of his players moved towards the ball. He was he was standing there watching his clock wind down, going, I have to get the ball in. And not one guy, when the initial plan, which looked to be to get something towards the rim for Jabari, that was really with Yanis as well. And he, with his, it looked to be to get something lobbed in Jabari's direction. That wasn't there, and he's just sort of, panicking until he tries to lob in Yanis direction and Draymond Green sort of laughs his way to the bank and slides in for a steal. It's pretty bad. And I, I what I'm trying to figure out on that is who is the book's best inbounder? Who should they be looking to? And I've I've a theory of one guy, but I want to hear your thoughts first. Who would you if Yanis isn't that guy, if Tony Snell probably isn't that guy. Who has a mix of tools that you say, you know, well, maybe that could be the book's inbounder? There's only one answer. That's one Stephen Michael Novak. Wow, really? No, no, no. Oh. I, I was actually, I was, <laughs> I was I intrigued by that. I don't think that's the worst idea. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that's such a weird no but think, his... think about this okay so there, there, there are a couple of things when you get to a late game situation maybe maybe this is maybe this is the Hawks fan of me that has seen this one of the Hawks favorite things to do in that kind of situation and that to be honest they don't go to finish it in this way as much as they used to because everyone sort of realizes that's what they're going to do but Kyle Corver would inbound the ball and he would inbound it because he's the guy they're going to try and get it back to. And there, there is sort of, that's a go-to for a lot of coaches is if you can get one of your best shooters to inbound the ball, 
get the ball back to him and then he's going to be the guy with the best chance of getting space i mean sort of by design you're kind of open if you're inbounding the ball tony yeah. Snell, for example steph curry was the guy closest to him but it wasn't this sort of frantic trying to deny the inbounds pass curry actually was allowing the pass to get in yeah he was just saying i'm i'm basically gonna stand here it was like playing zone defense in front mm-hmm. of the inbounder i'm gonna stand here and if delhi shoots across to try and give you an easy out well i'm gonna cover delhi yeah but otherwise you have your pass i'm not trying to get my hand on that and that sort of thing is a lot more difficult if you have Novak, actually, I hadn't thought of, or even Toledovic. No, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I know you were joking. I know, but I'm, there is something to that. But if you have a guy like that, I mean, and Curry's just standing there, well, he gets the ball in, then it's a big problem for the opposing team. My, my idea, my genuine it's, idea. Is it Delhi? No. Oh, it's Greg Monroe. <laughs> no, I know how it's going to sound, but I feel he's the best option. Michael right. Beasley. Michael Beasley. Oh my god. I feel. Oh, I feel like I love. I've come around on Beasley, um, and I update. I think he. I don't know. I was just gonna make a fingernail joke. He has blue fingernails. Um, <laughs> um, and that is it, that is totally play with fire though. Yeah, but I mean, so is Giannis at this point. Yeah, that's true. The reason why I'd like to see it, okay? So, we talk about the things, okay, the things that make Giannis this, supposedly, like, he's an ideal inbounder, which it just doesn't translate at all. It is the length, it's the size. Beasley has both of those things. He's very close to... Fingernails. Yeah, he's also got the fingernails. He is as close as you're going to get to Yanis on the roster in terms of sort of size-wise, someone who can fill that same function as an inbounder, if that's what you want. You want the long, tall guy. He is comfortable with the ball in his hands, and he can pass. He just chooses not to do it very often. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a skilled playmaker, and the one thing I will say with it is, and this might be the biggest thing, I was trying to think of, that like Dudley level of composure, like who on the books has that? Who can tick off enough other boxes? I don't even know if Delhi has that. I think there's just something so frenetic about Delhi's energy. I don't think he has that. Maybe Jason Terry has it, but Jed is so small that I don't really feel comfortable with it. a guy that small inbounding. And then it just sort of came to me. Well. Maybe for the wrong reasons, but Michael Beasley has that composure because he's just like he's just happy to be here, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I couldn't care less. I'm here, I'm in the NBA again. This is better than China. Sure, I'll inbound the ball. I love defense and inbounding the ball. <laughs> I I honestly I'm I would love to see with a game with a game on the line, I would love to see them say, Michael Beasley, you're the inbounder. Plus, because I, I do think it's nice to think that if you have, say, Yanis, Jabari, Toledovic, 
and deli out on the floor with them in that scenario or if you do have a big to sort of give you an option to paint i like the idea of if you're gonna give the ball to Yanis, try to run some screens that create some space that when the ball is inbounded to him he might have more of a clear run at the basket rather than the ball going to Delhi and then getting dropped back to Yanis, where all he's going to do is sort of ISO up and settle for like a jumper we saw against the Mavericks or a force drive where there's no real path to, to the rim to begin with. I like the idea of, well, if he's on the court and you can free him up with some nice screens or whatever, same with Jabari, you have a chance that you could just get a clear look to the basket. It's I it's insane. I know it's insane. I'm advocating for Michael Beasley to be responsible for the books in late game situations. But I, I I feel it's an issue that it's it's hard to find the answer for on the roster. I don't I don't know who it is. Maybe it's Jabari, but Jabari has tried a few times. I do remember Jabari having his own struggles with inbounding too. Yeah, I, I mean, why not Beasley? That's what I want to know, Jordan. Why not Beasley? Uh, I could just turn that question on its head and just say, "Why Beasley?" I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just I think when when you said when the game is on the line and said Michael Beasley's name, like you know, right after it. Like Pete, like <laughs> imagine like Jim Paskey or Marcus Johnson saying, "This game is on the line," and then say Michael Beasley's on the floor. Yeah, but know. the other the other thing with it is, if you give him the ball to inbound, <laughs> it's the one way you can guarantee that if you only have time to inbound and shoot, he's not getting the shot. It's the only way you can have him on the floor and guarantee that is, you know. If he has to inbound, he can't shoot. Maybe, maybe he'd try once. Maybe that would be he'd learn quickly. But I, I, I just struggled to find guys who I feel could make a pass, are probably composed enough to make a pass, and still have. I mean, maybe Brogdon could, maybe Terry could. I would like someone taller. If Middleton was throw up on, let's go Thon. Go on. I, I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to that though. That's that can be. You can do that. Like there are teams who do that. They'll have random guy X. That's even why when you said Novak, I sort of stopped and thought. I went, yeah, but maybe that could work. I don't know. I assume Novak is pretty cool and composed. Certainly in that uh, picture where he's next to Jr. The Lethal Weapon picture. <laughs> Looks cool, composed in there. I'm I'm not opposed to a guy like. Tom, Novak, Beasley, whoever. Like I don't I don't understand why when you've ten seconds left, it doesn't really matter having your best five guys on the floor because in reality outside, just... outside of the inbounder, only one other guy is likely to touch it. Yeah. Game's on the line. You've got one play. So if if Tom is a good enough passer and you feel confident, you know what, he's composed enough and he has the crazy lens. Well, yeah, go with Tom because he doesn't matter because if he gets the ball in, he's out of the play. Like, I mean, gets the ball in successfully to who you want it to go, that's one big step. I don't know. I, I, I don't have the answer, but I'd like to see them get more creative. They're very uncreative. 
just stick with the same few guys. Give it to Yanis, who has proven time and again. That's not his forte. Yeah. Why not put him in a better place to succeed? Figure out who is the best inbounder in a pressure situation and then get the ball to Yanis where he can have space to go to the rim rather than force it in, get it back, and then, okay, now you've got to make something happen and it's not going to look good. Uh, let's see predictions. Three games for the books this week. First of all, on Monday evening, the books will face off with the Orlando Magic in the Bradley Center. And they start the week with back-to-back home games, which is <laughs> particularly welcome, I think, at the moment. What do you feel? What do you feel about that game? How do you feel the books will do against the Magic at home on Monday? Um. Hmm. Well, I'm trying to think. Obviously, coming off a big game like the Warriors, all this stuff. Do you see a letdown game? Uh, Magic are, have played a little better. Where I am forgetting what their record is right now, but they are now only. Um, are they five hundred? No, they're maybe one game below, or worse, two games below. They're they're no worse than the books anyway, considering yeah. that they started badly. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Uh, I'll well, yeah. I I'll probably go. I'm gonna go. Bucks by. Bucks by eight. Um. Eight eight's a lot at the moment. I don't know. If it's one of these periods where I. Even if the books win, I'm not sure they can win by eight. Come on, Jordan, eight, eight points. Well, um, I'm gonna go books too, but I'm gonna go books by books by five. Close enough game to maybe give us a Michael Beasley inbounds pass. Um, all of the rest of the staff predictions will be in. Ties articles, previews, game by game. At the moment, the other person whose predictions I have is Tim Ray. He has gone books by five as well. So, mm. Tim and I agree on that. I guess before we go any further, I'll run through. I forgot this one last week, but uh, the leaderboard for first place, Ty Windish, nine and three, 114 point differential. Second, it's me, 8-4, 144 point differential. In third place, it's you, Jordan, 8-4, 155 point differential. Oh, man. We were, we were exactly to the same differential on everything until I nailed the, the Warriors by three. Um, fourth place, Harkins, 7-5, 139 point differential. Then it's Tom Feister, 7 and 5, 157 points. Tim Ray, treading water at 500. 6 and 6, 151 point differential. 
And then our two later starters, Adam Kaufman, Rowan Caddy, both at seven and four, 139 and 146 point differentials, respectively. After the Magic game on Monday, the Bucks have a bit of a break, a few days off. Um, obviously, Thanksgiving will come between now and then. I don't, is that is that the reason for the – there's no break, is there? Is, is the NBA off for Thanksgiving? I can't remember. Yeah, it is. Okay, that's the only day, basically, isn't it? Uh, I think they're also off for March Madness. Oh, the – the championship game? Could be right. No, I, I think when it starts. Okay. That, wait, that sounds wrong. That, that's yeah, very there's another, there's another day where they're yeah, Christmas Eve is, is definitely one other one that I forgot. So Christmas Eve, Thanksgiving, yeah. or there's not a whole lot of days, but that's one of them. They're also out for Flag Day. That's a real holiday. Well, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me what sort of holiday actually Those actually birth in Wisconsin. Did you know that? I, I know, like, nothing about Flag Day would be. Tell me about Flag Day. It's a holiday. Yeah, I got that much. It was birthed in Wisconsin. Yeah, I, someone told me that, yeah. Uh, I want to say, I, had to, I think it's the city they have in mind. Well, what's the point of it? Is what I really want to know. Is it? Is it? You bring out your flags, flags and you you celebrate your what, flags. What flags? What are your flags? Any type of flag. <laughs> Just any flag, really. That's any flag. I can make a flag. And, and I... you're you're proud to claim that this holiday originated in Wisconsin. It definitely originated in Wisconsin. I want to say it started in Fredonia. Uh, on Wikipedia. <laughs> it says Appleton, Wisconsin claims to be the oldest National Flag Day parade in the nation, held annually since 1950. It was also named the most patriotic city in America by AmericaTheBeautiful.com in 2000. Was that also based in Appleton? Was it? Is this <laughs> yeah? Appleton are just that's weird. So you think name huh. flag day? So what? So if I just roll up to some flag day parade, if you, if you go up to if you fly this, over to I don't know what's, what's in the parade, but okay, so I'm booking. I have no idea when flag day is, but I'm booking my flights for flag June fourteenth. Okay, um, and. I roll up. I probably have to fly into Milwaukee. Uh, then I'll make my way out to Appleton. And like, what if I, if I bring my my Irish tricolor with me and my Irish flag? That's that's I'm part of Flag Day just because You're it's part a flag. Of flag day. Doesn't matter what the flag is. It's a flag. People ooh and ah as they see the various flags that pass by and various cars, sedans, trucks, convertibles, buses. Wow. Um, Wow. I forgot fire trucks. That's all I can say. I don't know. I mean, maybe our Australian listeners can chime in on Flag Day. I don't know if they have Flag Day too, but it's a strange thing to me. Yes. I wonder if they have Flag Day in Canada, Jordan. Maybe you can ask the Toronto Raptors when they visit on Friday. What is your feeling for that game? Um. Um, of course, that's just a nice off day for them because they don't know uh, they have their own Thanksgiving in Canada, right? They have Canadian Thanksgiving. Yeah, technically, uh, it's gone already. Like, yeah, 
It's like the first week in October or second week, second week in October. Uh, I'm going to, I have to go Raptors. Raptors by, <laughs> Raptors by 10. And there's the proud Canadian in Jordan. Um, <laughs> I'm a fan of Canada and their flags. I'm gonna go. I know Raptors by six. I like the book's chances of keeping games close at the moment. Just not necessarily winning those games. Sunday. Sunday Books will play the magic again before our podcast is recorded next week. How will the books have fared against Seattle Magic? What mood will we be in next week? It's normally not a. It's we normally get set up in a bad way when that's the case. So if you know, it's it's been the opposite of our success last year. Yeah, how terrible! How terrible they were last year. We should have. We should have stuck with Monday podcasts just because we had a. That was like a seven or eight game streak we had. Yeah, we started off well. I I think we only there's maybe like two losses, and they were later in the year. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, what time is the game at? I want to say it's a it five o'clock start. Five p.m. Central start. Oh, that's a that's a little dicey. Do you want to know the weather forecast? I do. You have to look it up yourself then. Okay. Um. Uh, I'm gonna go. Uh, I, I'm gonna go magic by seven. Yeah, I'm gonna price is right you, but magic by eight. Um, it's supposed to be seventy-eight degrees on Sunday. You so you're still happy with magic by seven, taking that into consideration. I made up it a little bit. What did you? What was? I'm joking. So magic by seven for you. Magic by eight for me. Um, Tim went books by three in that one. He went Raptors by nine in the game before that. I I think we're probably on the same page. Thinking it just seems like a lot to ask for the books to beat the same team twice in a week. Probably yeah. That's sounds like it was stats. <laughs> the box, <laughs> everything that we talked about <laughs> before this. Yeah, all, all of that cheery stuff we talked about this week's podcast. Uh, before we get to the mailbag, must you remember that last week before we finished up, I introduced our comp- competition. I only realizing this now. Competition is not a word that is often used in the states, is it? It's co- contest would be. The more commonly used word. Let's say competition. The contest, yeah, contest is more friendly. Okay, well, let's, let, let me just let me murica it up a little bit, and I'll say contest. The flag. Yeah, I'll bring I'll bring my flag the flag there. Um, so we had a contest last week for one lucky winner who would get their hands on a Jason Kidd Pitbull remix. Dale winning six t-shirt. 
basically what we asked was explain to us or prove to us why you love winning six what's your favorite thing about winning six um maybe i maybe i was asking too much of people because entries were low this is this is a free t-shirt this is a desirable item right jordan very desirable it's free of charge free of charge (laughs) and entries were a little on the low side and there were some complaints that i didn't give enough time so we'll remedy that for future but all that really matters is we didn't need many entries because if we got a 100 200 entries i'm not sure the one that won could have been topped um as soon as i read it i I mean, yeah, this is the one. Sent it on to Jordan, and I think it's safe to say it ticked all of Jordan's boxes. Mm-hmm. So the lucky winner of our latest Winning Six t-shirt was none other than Matt McClanahan, better known as at Metastic to regular Winning Six listeners. And you're probably going, well, what, how did he win it? What did he say? Well, Jordan will give you a quick demonstration of what he said. Uh, provide the context. I'll, I'll read so, to the tune of a famous song by, I think Swedish, could be Danish, Scandinavian band. Aha. Take it away, Jordan. I'm not going to sing this. If you want to sing here, feel free to sing. I'm not going to sing. I don't have the confidence. Anyway. (laughs) To the tune of Take Out Me by Aha. Here we go. They're talking away. They really know what, what to say. Jordan's dog's in the way. Today's another day for podcasts. Jawing away. Uh, Kids out there screaming, Dale. And then to the chorus, uh, win in six. I feel like you need to sing this part, Jordan. I mean, it doesn't have to. No, I I don't want to. It doesn't have the same impact if you don't see it. (laughs) I'll do the echo part. Uh, uh, no, I win it. He does the. I, I, this is I've executed so this terribly. Win in six, and then I mean harmony. Win in six. Yeah. Ties not on. Win in six. The podcast's long. It's an hour or three. There you go. You know the the high pitch now. Jordan pitch. holding the high pitch now. At an all-time low there. That was low. <laughs> I went even lower. Yeah. I went the opposite of <laughs> the falsetto. Seems needless to say, in the mailbag, Jordan will be rambling away. Adam slowly accepts this is okay. Say after me, Gregory Keith Monroe is his full name. That part, my, that might be my favorite part. That's the day for you. Yeah. Uh, yes. And then it goes back to the chorus, uh, verse three. Uh, oh, the things that they say. Is it live or just a way to break down the games? 
they have all the things you've got to remember. You're listening today. The Bucks might not win till Friday. And then the chorus again. And but with a final, twist, Jordan. But with a with twist. With a twist. With a twist. It's, so go, go through the chorus again. Okay. Win in six. Echo. Ties that on. Echo wins this. And then the twist is, an M. Night Shyamalan-like twist is, MCW is gone in a trade. You went higher that time, see? Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to gauntlet down to Matt, down to Matastic. He has said he's busy at the moment, but he's going to record this for us in the next couple of weeks. So we will deliver a, a more authentic version. Hopefully in the future. Jordan did not really do it justice there. But I hope you, you all see the effort that Matt went to here in the t-shirt. And there will be one more t-shirt up for grabs. This contest is going to go on a little bit longer. And those of you this last week, remember, it ran until the Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. Central. Not enough time for some of you, so you don't listen in one sitting. How dare you? Um, but for this one, what we're going to do is Wednesday, 2.30 Central will be the deadline, but I'm going to give you an extra week. So you've got roughly 10 days. Um, so not this coming Wednesday, the following Wednesday, that's the deadline for entries. This time, it's nice and simple. You don't need to prove to us with in song why you deserve a t-shirt you just got to prove to us that you listen what i want to know is and you can send your answer to at behind the books on twitter or email to winning six podcast at gmail.com after which legendary book was jordan tresky's dog named after which legendary book was Jordan Dresky's dog named? Uh, long-time listeners, you may you may know this. You may be this is too easy. Those of you who are a little newer, I mean, I hope you listen carefully last week because I'm pretty sure I made the joke last week for you. So it's all there. You've just gotta you just gotta unpack it. The winner this time out will get a t-shirt of their choice the reason i say that is we may have multiple designs up by that time so it'll be up to them they can pick a t-shirt of choice um uh there will be of course the jason kid dalai one our winning six logo and a couple of other treats that are in the works should also be up by then too so you'll have a decision to make but you can only be in position to make that decision if you know which book's hero Jordan named his dog after. What do you think, Jordan? you think we're going to get more entries this week? I certainly hope so. I think I think it's certainly possible. Okay. Uh, you have $260. I was trying to... Sorry, that was very I don't know what you're out. trying to do, but we'll move on from it. <laughs> Time for the mailbag. First one from our competition winner at Metastic. What percentage of books fans know Novak only from the Sweet Caroline video? What? Yeah, you're looking with the same bemused look that I had on my face when I read this question. 
I don't know, did he did he choose that for lip sync last year or I don't know he no he even because he was um I, I I don't know I mean is he is he calling Steve Novak Neil Diamond here I I don't know I'm not really sure what's he is the uh, the Wisconsin Elvis. One of uh, Neil Diamond's nicknames is the Jewish Elvis. That's why. Oh, okay. I thought that was a completely <laughs> utterly unrelated, non- unrelated, <laughs> non joke. But yeah, I mean that that would be far apart from the. How do you know one of Neil Diamond's nicknames? I feel like that's not like not everyone knows his nickname. They know his music, they know his songs. They don't know his nickname, the a, Jordan. The guy's a classic entertainer. He's you know everyone's him. nickname. It's so creepy. I read him down uh, <laughs> as soon as I learned. <laughs> I have like screens. A lot of people count, count sheep to go to sleep. Jordan recites nicknames. It's like that, uh, you know, the movie MacGruber where he like feverishly writes down the license plate <laughs> KFBR three two one or seven two one whatever it is like that's me with nicknames. YMCA YMCA YMCA. The next one from Atmatastic. <laughs> Does Jason Kidd now think Greg Monroe is worth less than Kansas again, or what's going on? Matt's memory is so much better than both of ours. I think this was I know this was one of the first. Times Matt was involved in the mailbag. I think we were comparing Greg Monroe to states. Just yeah, we said he's in Kansas for uh, some. I think you 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 made some throwaway comments that undoubtedly offended the whole population of Kansas, and this yeah. is where we are now, all these months later. Yeah, I can't remember what the context for that was, but I, I want to say it was probably something like I'm guessing it was like something fit related, like um, I don't know. We're not in Kansas anymore. I don't think it was. I don't I think it was something cruder than that. Anyway, I I think whatever whatever Kansas is worth, it, it would seem that Greg Monroe thinks or Jason Key thinks Greg Monroe is worth less right now. Yeah. Seems safe to assume. And in the end, all all we are is just in the wind. That's a Kansas song. <laughs> From a finally backer. If we're trying to make the playoffs. Why are Terry and Plumley playing so many minutes? As a follow-up question to this, finally, Becca also asks, if this is a development year, why are Terry and Plumley getting so many minutes? <laughs> uh, well, probably they, they, you know, as I detailed in my most recent takeaways piece, uh, they they just signed him to a four-year, $52 million deal. So... He's going to play. Jason Terry, on the other hand, uh, I think just comes back to trusting Jason Terry. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, uh, that's all I can say. I mean, the book's basically filled up like a dumper truck full of cash, reversed it up <laughs> to Miles Plumlee's house, and just like <laughs> left it on the lawn. So, I yeah. mean, Plumlee's got to play. I'd, I would be annoyed if Plumlee really wasn't playing at all, because... I mean, what, if you're asking yourself, what could make the Plumley contract look worse right now? How about him getting all the DMPs? Yeah. <laughs> Insane. I'm frustrated, but I, I'm keeping my head high or whatever 
Monroe's court. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't think did it did move Scott off her? Did he? Did he say that? I probably, I probably. I think you're 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 putting words in his mouth there. I don't think he was giving that much detail. He was he just was, like, he was keeping his head all line when he was doing like that dance move or like that. When he was singing to himself, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Jordan and mine's favorite thing. I think maybe the Bucks full stop on is just watching Greg Monroe react to things. Mm-hmm. He has got exceptional faces. Yes, the man. If he really wants to, he can have a, a post-playing career where he's an actor. A, a second career as a meme, even. I mean, that's definitely in play. Yeah. From TRW24. Where does Steve Novak's blazer over hoodie combo rank among the greatest fashion choices from inactive players of all time? Uh, I feel like this is your wheelhouse. I feel like you're going to have like coffee table book at some stage far down the line that is just this odd yeah if i had a a lasting contribution on this great earth of ours my my coffee book would coffee table book would be odd fashion or fashion choices uh, of players, are, this is a, a long title and terrible. <laughs> Columbus. Really snappy. It's gonna sell a lot of copies. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just imagining Michael Scott when he's doing the newspaper headline <laughs> and all the gestures. Anyway, the coffee table book would be players that wear odd choices on the bench in weird nicknames. Anyway, back to the question. It hits uh, home to us. Uh, Wisconsinites, if I can call myself that, because obviously uh, James Jones was famous for wearing a hoodie over uh, his jersey and pads. Uh, was that last year already? That was it had to been last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Um, so seeing Steve Novak again emulating one of another Packer. But this time with his uh, in his street clothes, it was just when I was watching the game, I, I just like I don't know, I wasn't flabbergasted. It just <laughs> coffee at like the right time. I'm like, is he wearing a, a hoodie? But anyway, I, I would de- deem it the greatest fashion choice I've ever seen. Uh, and certainly the greatest greatest decision I've ever seen Steve Novak make in a Bucks, uh, well, not technically in uniform, but whatever. I mean, one 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 guy owns this category, and it's, it's, it's very recent. It's from this season. It's of course is Paul Pierce showing up for Halloween. See, you know, I, 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 <clears throat> not to get bothered, but the the thing was, everybody was saying that that was during the game. That was not during the game. That was he showed up to the game wearing that, and then when you, I don't think he was even sitting on the bench. He wasn't on the bench wearing that. I'm really certain I saw clips of Paul Pierce in game. But it was, like but those pictures were coming from war, like the warmups. I don't think he was dressed like that for the game, honestly. I mean, this is this is why you're the one who's going to write the the coffee table book because there's like a steward's inquiry into when exactly Paul Pierce changed out his Rick James costume. Yeah, um, yeah. I gotta. I'm gonna go straight to Balmer tomorrow. Gotta ask him. 
Balmer will probably scream excitedly and sweat profusely and you'll get <laughs> you'll get nothing but gibberish out of his mouth. He'll um, randomly jump on a trampoline to land in his office chair to pick up the phone. I feel like didn't OJ Mayo have some great fashion choices on the bench last year when he was injured. Yeah, the, the, yeah, there was definitely one where Didn't he have he like was... one one jumper that like I don't know had had basically the equivalent of the way his hair was at the moment. It had like so... bits just hanging out of it. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. I know he had like a like a weird like an army fatigue jacket type. He was wearing something mm-hmm. like that. I know tonight I, I was watching this before, but Paul George looked like he was Austin Powers on the bench. He had like some kind of like this weird one of those. It's not an ascot, but it's like it puffs out. Uh, I, I can't. Maybe it is an ascot. I'll just call it an ascot, and someone can correct me, and I'll be happy. Um, but yeah. That was tonight, Paul George. I thought was it. Yeah. It's the Oklahoma City because he was uh, is some 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 injury ankle injury I want to say. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking for pictures unsuccessfully. The next question from Espen VS: How good of a coach is Jason Kidd on a scale of one to ten? Mm. I, I actually, I this is a very simple question that I think is a great question because I think it's the step back. It's like, okay, one to ten. Ten being maybe something we've never seen or being the very, very best guys in the league. Where is he? Oh. I guess I go f- Five. Yeah, that's me too. I'm going five. Yeah. Which I mean is basically just he sends the guys out there and then they are neither really better or worse for him being the coach. They'll be better in some ways, worse in other ways, and it's just sort of neutral and he's pretty he is he's very middle of the road in what he's shown so far. He is mediocre without doubt. Mm. So yeah, I mean uh, maybe just because we didn't dive into it earlier, but the kid backlash is I, I find it phenomenal because I remember when I was being particularly vocal about this last season. Um there were not many people who would have been rowing in to get on board with it. And I know we talked at the time that it was nearly the good feeling of the playoff run had bought him some time. And then also the fact that, and maybe this is where it's changed, but that this was a franchise who had been without a real star for a long time. Jason Kidd was the star. This was like, Oh yeah. Hall of Fame caliber point guard, Jason Kidd. He was the guy, and he was coming. He was going to lead this. And I just wonder, has, like, Yanis becoming what he's become, Jabari improving? Has that really gone? Well, you know what? Jason Kidd, he's... The books The books be fine with Jason Kidd. They have the star. His name's Yanis. Or his name's Jabari. I wonder, has that sort of built on that? Because 
okay, there's always going to be some dissenting voices, and that's in many cases rightly, in other cases wrongly. But this is a much more powerful sort of feeling I'm getting right now, and that is, I should say, we're gauging that off Twitter. I would be curious. I don't know if you were to poll at a books game. Will you still have a majority of people who go to books games who are just sort of blindly loyal to kid the organization, what's happening? They're just there to support the team regardless, rather than, you know, this coach is doing that wrong or that coach could be better. I don't know. It's, it's something that interests me why, why it's really flared up now. Because although it's been a bad week, as we said earlier, they're two games below 500 with a not great Magic team twice on the schedule this week. And it's really like, well, what were we expecting? So I find them curious why it's turned like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I could go on a little more, but I just, it is. We yeah, don't want to, yeah. we don't want to break your spirit entirely, so we don't make you. <laughs> the next one from at C. Janicek. Why does Kid insist on giving the ball to Yanis for last shots when he can't shoot or ball handle well and forces things? Shouldn't Delhi have the ball at the end of halves or games? He can handle the ball, penetrate, and shoot or pass. But what was I'm sorry, what was the so what, why does why does Kid insist on giving the ball to Yanis for last shots when he can't shoot or ball handle well and forces things? Shouldn't Delhi have the ball at the end of halves or games? He can handle the ball, penetrate, and shoot or pass. I don't know. I know that that it's it's kind of a cop out answer, but I really I don't I don't know. Again, we talked about this before last week. Talked about it a few times this summer. The fact that Giannis is a truly uh, consistent scorer, more than you know, twenty points a game, all that stuff, and he. You know, the fact that he, when he hits, like, not even just – if it's just one, it's nice. But if it's, like, two for four from mid-range or he hits one three-pointer on as many attempts, the fact that that, like, stands out to us so much, it's still kind of crazy to think, like, this is a guy that is capable. I mean, he scored 30 points last night against the Warriors pretty easily. Um but in those situations, I, I don't know. And obviously, I am not alone saying this. And I probably, you're probably in the same way, but it just seems more natural for something to, for Jabari to handle, especially now with Milton out. But who knows why that is the case? I don't know. I think, I think with Yanis, what makes him different from a lot of the best scorers in the league is. If you take like a Carmelo Anthony or even a LeBron or Kevin Durant, most of those guys are going to score. They're going to score the ball better when it sort of all breaks down and they get a chance to go one-on-one with someone because they're so skilled and they have so many ways that they can beat your score that you're not going to stop them. And with Giannis... It's more that within the flow of the offense, if the offense clicks for the books, you can't stop him. But if it's not firing or if it's not this sort of freewheeling fluid 
mechanism, well then his effectiveness sort of disappears to close to zero. As we have talked about tonight a lot, a lot of what Giannis's success is based on is just flow, rhythm, you know, inertia. It's basically just momentum. You know, the fact that he can he he probably can do this considering like how athletic he is, but he can, you know, do it sometimes in a standstill. But the fact like his most of his high when you think of Giannis, it's not him like, you know, uh, a standstill move or making one move. It's him doing grabbing the ball. It's this, you know, succession of movements. It's not like stop start kind of thing. Uh at least most of the time. Um I I guess the that's for him to do that in a play, like you said, it's set specifically designed, all that stuff. Like that kind of goes against entirely who he is as a player at this point, really. Um, and it's something he has to learn how to play. Obviously, having better shooting would help in that situation, but he's also 21, and you know that can that can still be better over time. But who knows? I think the the proof is there for the books in terms of the only the only time they've really managed to execute on in that kind of situation this year was when Jabari was the guy and he drove and he and he missed a shot and they still were able to get it because that was the difference between the two guys was Jabari was Jabari was confident and aggressive enough really more so than Yanis has been in any of those situations to make sure he got a shot going to the rim and gave others a chance to clean up if he missed. That's what happened. On the other hand, I mean, like, look, Giannis is not going to miss dunks like he did late against the Warriors. I do feel the Bucks had... They created some good stuff. Um, The inbounds was on the guys for not getting the ball in, but that's why I'm I'm sort of curious as I wonder what those prunty sets would have looked like particularly the one where Giannis inbounded. I think we all we all knew the play that was being run for the Tony Snell one. But for the Giannis inbounds, I just wonder what they would have ran because they did some nice things. The other, aside from the Giannis misdunk, the other big opportunity they had was Telly had a wide open tree. Yeah. I mean, that's within a two-minute span. They had the turnover from Snell. They had the missed Giannis dunk. Telly missed a wide open tree and Giannis had that fourth shot in the lane. Mm-hmm. Any one of them goes, you're probably going to overtime. Mm-hmm. Had their chances, didn't come off. But yeah, I've, I'm, I'm giving the ball to Jabari every time. I trust his offense more. That's when it's like, score me the ball in a life or death situation. He has more skill than that. It's different if it's open play. And you're going to have, say, transition opportunities. Give me Yanis every time. Defense set, ready to react to whatever you do. Give me Jabari. Lastly, from at David Dunn 21. Constant intrigue, rumors, and controversy. A soap opera inside a tragedy wrapped in a superhero origin story. Is this fun? It's ultimately, yeah, it's fun. Really? <laughs> I, I guess my version of fun or... It's very twisted, yeah. Yes, very. 
very M. Night Shyamalan-like. Not to keep bringing that up. But anyway, um, I, I think it's fun, whatever it is. I, I know. The fact that we're, you know, talking about, yeah, whatever. But that's the end of my answer. It's fun. <laughs> I, I'm not finding it fun at all. It was fun two weeks ago. It stops being fun when it's November and we have to talk about DNPs for a big name player and stuff. When, when that sort of stupid crap raises its head in November. That's when it stops being fun. Are the books on the court a fun product? Are they good to watch? Are they playing much better basketball? Absolutely. But like the the soap opera inside a tragedy element of that that we've only really gotten the past week, some of the stranger decisions come out again, the stuff that really gives me horrible flashbacks to last year. That is not fun. It's particularly not fun in November well, as I said again, the team is only two games behind 500. So it should be more fun right now than it is. But as always with the books, we're only one one week away from fun and then two weeks away from further disappointments. That is it for this week. So our version of one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, pretty much. That is it for this week's podcast. Don't forget the contest. You have got however many hours, Jordan. Like 216 hours. Which is about 10 days. Um, the question, once again, is which legendary book is Jordan Tresky's dog named after? Send your answers on a postcard to... That's a joke. Send your answers <laughs> to uh, Behind the Books on Twitter or at win6podcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Don't be afraid to give us a five-star rating or review there too. Follow us on SoundCloud, add us on Stitcher. Check out all of our work on BehindTheBookPass.com. And we will be back with God knows what sort of treasures next week. Thank you very much, Jordan. Thank you.